Welcome back to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. Joining me today, a former Phoenix police officer, undercover narcotics guy, SEAL Team 5 veteran, Clark Impostato. Clark, how are you, man? I'm doing good, brother. What's going on, man? Not a whole lot, man. Just got the kid to sleep. Had an interesting uh, interesting dinner time with him flinging chips all over the floor of a, one of the local restaurants. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> uh, he's one, and I don't know what else to do. So that's 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 life with a one-year-old. Clark, you're, you're a dad, though, so you know where I'm coming from. Oh, yeah, and a granddad, man. So, yeah, I, I, I'm all about little kids destroying things, man. And a granddad, <laughs> man. So uh, and we're going to talk about it all individually, but Clark served in the military. Uh, he was a police officer, and he was a private defense contractor. I hope that your grandkid knows that uh, old granddad's basically Captain America, mixed, mixed, with, uh, mixed with a little bit of the dude. So <laughs> probably, Probably heavy on the dude. A little sprinkle of Captain America, but very light on the Captain America. <laughs> I don't want to disappoint nobody. <laughs> oh man, uh, uh, we give a, a nonprofit shout out uh, every episode, uh, and and late I, I used to kind of come up with them. I still keep a, a running list, but uh, lately, Clark, I've been letting my guests uh, uh, pick them. And you wanted to talk about uh, Debbie Lee's foundation, America's Mighty Warriors. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime I have a chance to mention her, talk about her and her foundation or raise a little bit of money. Sometimes I've co-branded with some companies and, you know, 10% of the profits go to her or whatever. And the reason why um, I believe in her as opposed to the, you know, thousands, if not more other organizations out there is uh, when I lived in Phoenix, I became friends with her and I actually saw where the money from that foundation goes to include uh, services she helped me with directly. So it was not only just a personal connection, but then I saw how she helped several friends of mine. And, and it actually is nice to know that any money that's raised by her foundation actually goes um, to people seeking services. And you have always wondered some of these other bigger foundations, you know, the CEOs driving a Ferrari and you're like, wow, how much of this, you know, millions of dollars you're getting a year go to where it needs to go. And at least with, uh, we call it Mama Lee. She's now kind of the mom of the SEAL teams with Mama Lee you know that uh, most of it's going in the right direction and a very small piece of it is to keep the admin side going. I think she might have one little assistant that helps her with scheduling and website and things like that, but otherwise it's all going in the right direction. And so it's a smaller organization. That's why I encourage people to check it out and support it. And, uh, and I guarantee that the money raised goes to, you know, the people that need to help the most. So she's a wonderful woman. Uh, for people that don't know, her son was the first uh, SEAL killed in Iraq in uh, 2006, and uh, and it was tough. I was in country when it happened. I was a contractor at the time, but I felt a deep connection to the story right as soon as I heard about Mark getting killed. And then I was blessed to become friends with Mama Lee while I lived in Phoenix. So we're still still close to, you know, to this day, we're still close. I just had her on my podcast a few weeks ago, and it's always good chatting with her. So if anyone can... Uh, support her, check her out. She's got an Instagram page um, and also a website. I don't know exactly what the website is, but again, the foundation is America's Mighty Warrior. So check it out and see uh, see if you can help out. Yeah, it's. Uh, I would just just Google it real quick. So you can Google America's Mighty Warriors, or it's uh, America's Mighty Warriors dot org. Uh, again, that's uh, Debbie Lee's foundation. I had the pleasure of meeting Debbie 
very, very briefly at, uh, at Scottsdale gun club one day, just happened to walk through the doors there. Uh, and, and she was out just raising awareness for, for her foundation. I picked up a, a patch and a challenge coin, uh, uh, for Mark, not, I, I'm not a veteran myself, but again, I, you know, I, I take a lot of the, uh, the stories of, of what happened to you guys overseas, uh, to heart. Uh, I got a lot of, a lot of really good friends that are veterans. So, uh, uh, my, my veterans out there, you guys are always near and dear to my heart and you always got a, uh, you always got a, a glass of whiskey here if you need one. So, uh, again, Amer- America's mighty warriors, uh, dot org. Go ahead and, and check it out. Uh, Clark, I ask everybody, uh, first things first, man, you can have a drink with anyone in the world alive or dead. Who is it? And what are you drinking? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Alive or dead. Ooh, man. Oh, the first thought that popped in my head is not good. <laughs> I was thinking vanity. The chick from the eighties. Okay. Okay. Hey, roll with it, man. You don't... <laughs> a lot of people might not know who she is, but my favorite movie growing up as a kid was Barry Gordy's last dragon. And man, did I fall in love with her. She's just amazing. She she ended up dying a few years back, but she's one of Prince's little playmates, little toys there, whatever. Man, I had a crush on her. Oh my god! So I, I, I should be something like Abraham Lincoln or something cool. But I was thinking, damn, it'd be cool to get drunk with Vanity. Hey, don't be ashamed, <laughs> man. We've all. I, I think that that everybody who's like watched '80s films, you know, who grew up with, with you know, if it's. Uh, yeah. Uh, I forget the name of the guy who directed the breakfast club, but he also did like fast times at Ridgemont high and 16 candles. Oh, and, yeah. Um, classics, yeah. Uh, classics, man. Jennifer Jason Lee for me, bro. Don't, so don't worry. You're in good company, oh, man. Nice. You're in good company. All right. Uh, All right. Good. Yeah. So, good question. I like caught me off guard. Well, and I kind of <laughs> fucked you. Cause I think I usually send that out in a text message at least five minutes beforehand. So I apologize, man. <laughs> no, I'm glad because I would have thought of something like Gandhi, green tea or something lame and sanitized. So yeah, you know, some, uh, some, I don't know, Crown Royal with vanity. Why not? Let's just do it. <laughs> <laughs> Crown Royal with vanity. Check and check. We can find out where she's buried and maybe we can just head over there with a bottle of Crown. Yeah. There we go. Why there not, go. man? Like Why it. not? Every, COVID's starting to, <laughs> to, to fuck off, hopefully, and, and traveling. I was on a flight to and from Colorado over Valentine's Day weekend, and that fucking plane was full. I'm pretty sure that the guy next to me was actually sitting in my lap. So uh, I'm sure we can get to wherever we need to get to, man. Uh, Clark, right. I, 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 I joked a little bit about Captain America, man. Uh, but before we dive into uh, to all of the ways in which, uh, in which you served... Um, uh, tell us about your childhood, man. Where, where'd you grow up? What was it like growing up? Yeah, I grew up, uh, just outside of Colorado Springs, Colorado. So I was a little hillbilly kid. It was a small town called Cascade, probably I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, uh, outside of Colorado Springs. It's actually at the base of Pikes Peak, pretty well-known mountain in Colorado. And so my childhood was, was fun. It was in some ways isolated, like I didn't have neighbor kids to really play with. So I was pretty creative. I uh, would go out in the woods and play army guy and build tree forts and very outdoorsy. Um, and then when school time would come around, I just loved all the kids in one classroom. Cause again, I didn't have any neighbor kids really. And so I kind of enjoyed entertaining. I was like a little Robin Williams, a little Eddie Murphy. It was just showtime for me. So I was just the class clown and loved school, had a good time. Um, very, normal childhood really 
Uh, as I got older, I got into hockey, so sports became an important thing, hitting the gym and playing hockey. Um, dated the same girl all through high school. So just kind of a typical American childhood as, as I remember it, watching all the cool cartoons from the 80s, Transformers and He-Man and all that stuff. So it was it was really good, but it was in my childhood where I started to kind of catch uh, the itch for the military. My mom was into World War II movies, so I'd watch those with her, and I thought that was kind of cool. And then all the 80s movies, the Rambos and the, you know, Stallone movies, the Schwarzenegger movies, the Van Damme movies. So, you know, I don't know, a kid that grew up and didn't want to be some type of Captain America dude. So it uh, caught my interest early on. And then uh, in high school, the Gulf War kicked off, and that's when I was like, oh, shit. So my childhood was very active, but very sheltered in a way. You know, I didn't grow up in an abusive home. I didn't hang out with the stoners or the cool kids. It was pretty much hockey, my steady chick. And then uh, I thought I would try some college and uh, ended up joining the Navy after completing my junior year of college because I had two little ones in tow at the time. So I needed a paycheck and some insurance. And so uh, my childhood quickly turned into adulthood. Once you uh, got some little ones in tow, it's a game changer. So, But looking back on it, it was fun. I just no dramas. I uh, had good friends. Raised by a single mom, but she was she was awesome. So very fond memories looking back on my childhood. Loved growing up in Colorado. It was uh, very laid back, very cool, very outdoorsy. So, yeah, it was good, which ended up serving me well uh, later on, which I'm sure we'll get to the unit that I ended up at. It's not really known for its uh, land warfare prowess. <laughs> and so I was one of the few dudes that was comfortable in the woods. And so when we get to that section... They got some funny stories about uh, the surfer dudes, how well they do in the forest. It's kind of funny. <laughs> what, are, what are all these fucking sticks? Those are called trees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have, oh, I have to say, so, man, I, uh, I had not been in Colorado. Uh, I think that this last time that I went with my wife was like the second time in my entire life I've been up there. It is a beautiful state. Um, uh, we went up to Vail, and the, the guy in the shuttle van that drove us from Denver International uh, out to Vail was, I was kind of sitting towards the front of the van. And so he was, you know, and he had that, that kind of SoCal surfer voice, but he was from Louisiana, which didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but it was like, uh, oh, bro, like, what do you do for fun in Arizona? And I was like, um, well, I try not to die in the extreme heat. Um, and well, we don't really have snow except in Northern Arizona, but even, yeah, there's not a whole, what we do for fun in Arizona is we come to other States. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's funny. Well, I'm glad you got to see Colorado. It's uh, it is a great place. Just very beautiful. And, uh, I, to this day, my mom still lives out there. So I try to get back at least once a year and just cruise around the old neighborhood and, it is nice. I hope to retire out there at some point, but uh, for now I'm stuck in California, but at least I'm in Northern California. So it's uh, enough like Colorado that I'm happy. There's trees and stuff like that. So it's all good, man. Yeah. The, the, uh, the dichotomy between Southern and Northern California, and I have not spent hardly any time in, in Northern California, but I mean, it's, 
it's night and day difference when you get up, especially if you get north of the Bay Area, you get towards like Eureka, and yet you're out in the woods. Yeah. It's it's Southern Oregon is where you are. It is. It's very weird. You know, I was stationed in San Diego, so I I caught a glimpse of the SoCal vibe and definitely love it. San Diego is a great place and fond memories of Southern California. But coming up here, I've been up here a couple years now, and it is different. Like holy crap, you can't even believe. It's the same state. Most states, no matter where you go, it's kind of the same vibe. But California, it's, it's apples and oranges for sure. Yeah. 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 Heck yeah, man. So you, you get into junior high school, you got your little ones, and you decide that uh, uh, the route that you're going to take is to join America's Navy. Uh, walk us through, uh, you know, was it was it like a light bulb moment? Was there a catalyst or did you just happen to stumble into a recruiter at an olive garden and then you ended up next thing you knew you were on a ship somewhere <laughs> in the ocean? <laughs> well, my first uh, attempt at the military was, uh, and I actually forgot about this till I found some documentation at my mom's house this last Christmas. Um, a buddy of mine was in a, the reserve when I was in college and he kind of talked me into joining the reserves. And so I joined the reserves. I was in the delayed entry program and another buddy who had just graduated from Marine Corps officer candidate school said, no, dude, you're in college. Why would you be an enlisted guy in the reserves? Why don't you be an officer in the Marine Corps? And I'm like, Oh, well, that sounds cool. You know, more money or whatever. Didn't really know anything about the military. So it was a fairly easy switch because it was still a contract with the Marine Corps. And what they do is they give you an option. Um, you can do it all in one shot during the summer break, or you can split it. You can do one 10 week course, or you can do two six week courses. And I chose the two six week courses. And I think it was between my sophomore and junior year. I went out for the juniors course out in Quantico and I hated it. It was miserable. I completed the course. I graduated from it, flew back to Colorado and thought, fuck this shit like it just i love my marines dude but they are so fanatical about the dumbest shit <laughs> i really could care if my boot is late left over right or my uniform is so starched it can stand without me it can just stand on its own like i just i felt while i was out there for the six weeks like we're really focusing on stupid shit and of course the officer version is you know the lamer version of what the enlisted guys go through there was a lot of classroom there was a lot of uh they're trying to bestow upon you that like you're better than the enlisted guys and you can't fraternize with them. Like there's a grooming that went with it. And I'm like, that's just not me, man. I don't, I'm not digging it. In fact, when you, when you graduate, the drill instructors will debrief you. And they actually told me, we mean this as a compliment, but we, you would be a better enlisted Marine because you're a hands-on type of guy. You're not good at just delegating shit and standing around and supervising. So I took that, went back to, uh, to Adam States where I was going to school down in Southern Colorado. And I talked to a couple of my buddies and one guy gave me good advice. He said, look, don't join just for the sake of joining. Find like a unit that has your personality or a, a job that you like. Cause if you just join the military, it could be miserable. They'll find some stupid shit for you to do. So I happened to stumble upon uh, Dick Marcinko's red cell. He's uh, uh, the founding member of SEAL Team 6. So, of course, he writes a real sexy book, right? This is must, where every SEAL must do this every day. So I, I called my officer, selection officer in the Marine Corps, told him I wanted out. I was going to enlist in the Navy and be a SEAL. He thought I was crazy, but he let me do it. So he dumped me off at the Navy recruiter's doorstep. And uh, I signed up, 
and uh, ended up going to boot camp and was on the USS Shiloh, <clears throat> which is a boat. It's an Aegis missile cruiser. So for about a year and a half, almost two years, I was in the regular Navy, and I hated it, but I learned a very valuable, I guess it's a life lesson. I told myself that every bad day on the Shiloh would be a good day in BUDS. And BUDS, of course, you know, in case your listeners don't, is uh, SEAL training. stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. So I knew if I could just suck this up, I had to do a deployment. We were deploying to the Persian Gulf. If I make the best of it, stay motivated. Obviously, they're not going to give the shitbag orders to BUDS. Even though my job is chipping and sanding and painting the damn thing gray, I got to attack it with a passion. And, uh, and it worked. And also that mindset of every bad day in the fleet will be a good day in BUDS worked when I was in BUDS because when I would feel sorry for myself, I would see a ship on the horizon either coming in or, or leaving the bay. And, and I knew what was waiting for me. And I knew how hard I worked to get to this point. So I stopped feeling sorry for myself real quick. So at a, at a young age, I was able to wrap my brain around that. And everyone's got to start out somewhere, right? Everyone's got to start out in the mailroom. You just can't, uh, like, you can't graduate the police academy and roll right up with the SWAT dudes. You know, right. you got to pay your dues. You got to work the streets, and and so luckily in the military, I figured that out early on. And so it got me through my sleep time, which is very tough. There's nothing sexy about being a deck seaman. It really sucks. <laughs> painting the painting the shit. Even the title, I'm like, that's just weird. I'm Why a, I'm a, a deck seaman. Like, oh yeah, sure you are. Yeah. Yeah. At least you still got the bell bottoms though, right? Like the, that, that crisp, uh, you know, enlisted Navy uniform. Uh, it was the old world war two looking shit. Yeah. Back now they have different uniforms, but it was the dungarees, like the bell bottom prison uniforms. And then, uh, of course the cracker jacks, the typical, you know, Popeye outfit. Right. Right. So it was, it was humbling. I thought maybe I'd made a mistake. I could have been an officer in the Marine Corps. And now I'm wearing these bell bottoms. Like maybe, (laughs) wasn't a good life decision but uh, you knew there were 50 shades of gray before the fucking book ever came out oh absolutely oh yeah (laughs) being underway with all those dudes it gets weird (laughs) yeah i my uh my grandfather was uh was on a udt uh back in like korean war era you know mid mid to late 1950s and i want to say he bought me dick marcinko's book um Oh, nice. There were, there were a handful. It was that one. It was Dennis Chalker's one perfect op. And, uh, that's a great book. Yeah. I, I don't know if he was, uh, you know, I, I had a, a strong passion, uh, for, for learning about the military and then just found my way into a different mm-hmm. uniform, uh, ultimately. But, but yeah, when you, when you yeah. said that there's there, that is a, like, uh, like every little kid who grew up, grew up wanting to be a Navy SEAL has probably read that book cover to cover 44 times over. Um, so it's I, huge, you know? I, I had to it's, chuckle it's, when you, when you, when you set that one. <laughs> and now, now there's so many other options, you know, maybe a little bit more recent and relevant, uh, for, for kids to read. So I, oh, yeah. Yeah. there's a lot of information out there, a lot of shit on, uh, social media, on YouTube. I try to make myself available. Uh, my old account, which got, I got Zuck, it got shut down. I used to get, man, a hundred more DMS a day and half of them from young dudes that wanted some information or, you know, whatever about buds. And, and I would always answer them. And it was sad. A lot of them would say, wow, you're the first seal to reply to me. Thank you. And I thought, you know, these other guys, shame on them. Because if, when we were young dudes, if I had access to like DM Marcinko and he replied, I would have shit myself. Like 
make yourself available and pay it forward to that younger generation that's looking to get in it. Cause we didn't have that option. There was <clears throat> no information out there other than a few Vietnam era seal books. Marcinko was one of them. I don't even think Denny's uh, book was out yet when I was looking into it. So now young guys have so much information out there and, and I would encourage anybody in any profession, if an up and coming uh, male or female hits you up in whatever profession, take some time out and don't forget you were them at one point in time. You were the little seal wannabe or the little cop wannabe or whatever it is. Just take that five minutes and, you know, give them a little info and pat them on the back and wish them luck. You know, it's not that hard, but I was disappointed how many team guys would shit on these little wannabes. Like, Hey, we were wannabes at one time, you know? So yeah. I, I, I don't get hit up as much. My, my new account's not as known, but, uh, I still try to take time and answer questions about that. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and good on you, man. Cause like you said, it's, I mean, there's so much information out there, but we, I think just as human beings, we crave information and the more we can get the better. I mean, even when I was, when I was in high school and I wasn't sure what direction I was going to go, I mean, it was, you know, the, the early to mid two thousands, you know, that Oh four, Oh five, Oh six, uh, uh, you know, I think I graduated in 2009. Um, but even, even then, like it was, you could read stuff off of forums, but for, for me, when I was trying to figure out what direction my life was going to go, I think I watched that fucking discovery channel, what class two thirty four documentary on buds. I think I watched yeah, that yeah. thing. I dude, anytime that thing was on, I was watching it. <laughs> yeah. They did a good job. That was a cool documentary. Yeah. I remember when that came out. Well, yeah. you brought up a, a really great point. Um, and I think you might've brought it up on uh, on the mic drop podcast which shout out to mike ritland and the mic drop podcast because that's that was a driving force between uh or excuse me driving force to me starting my own podcast and and that's where i heard uh clark speak first so that's that's uh, now how clark and i have been brought together on this lovely sunday evening um but uh <laughs> yeah but, thanks mike we yeah yeah thank together. you mike i don't know if you're ever going to listen to this but thank you um but uh that whole you know you're, you're sitting out there in buds and you're getting wet and sandy and, and life sucks because the pacific ocean i mean i i grew up my grandparents lived in oceanside so not too terribly far north of san diego and that water is damn cold no matter what time of year it is um it is, was yeah. your buds class a winter class or was it a summer class or? Well, they're all winter classes in that it's six months long. So you oh, fair enough. <laughs> one way or another, but I caught the luckiest version of, of that scenario that you could. Our winter time is when we were at San Clemente Island. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I want to say we graduated in February. So we had to be out on the island, you know, the bulk of that sometime in January, early February. And it was miserable, but we were lucky because you're so close to graduating. They, they cut your legs off. You would still go because you're weeks away from completing this monster course. I feel more sorry for the classes that catch the wintertime, um, you know, in the first few weeks because then it's just like, oh, shit, it's horrible. So it's you're going to catch it one way or another. But I think I caught the, the best way that it could kind of happen. But I think I can't remember we went through how week. Maybe around, uh, I got there in July, so it was pretty decent, pretty decent weather. We didn't class up to like August, September, maybe Hell Week was October, around Halloween, I kind of remember. Um, but it's still, like you said, the water is cold. And they we don't know at the time, we didn't know at the time, is they have a formula for the water temperature. They'll have the junior class take the water temperature every morning before PT and give that information to the instructors. And what that, what that does is now they have, 
a chart they have to go off of. If the water temperature is 52 degrees, they can only keep you in the water for so long before they have to bring you out and beat you, make you do jumping jacks and run around to get your, your core temperature up. And so uh, the warmer the water is, actually, the longer they can keep you in, which you don't know at the time. You think they can just keep you in for as, as long as they want to, but they really can't. So you kind of, it's just, you're still going to catch the pain. Instead of keeping you in for 40 minutes, they keep you in for 30 minutes because of the temperatures. And being from Colorado, I had no business being in cold water. In fact, I had an <laughs> attitude. I was like, how cold can California be? I'm from Colorado, bro. This ain't nothing. Then I touched that Pacific Ocean. was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, that, that water just saps everything <laughs> oh, out of you. You're just like, are you kidding me? What? I thought this was California. And then I learned about tides and currents, and I realized that you know, the way the current works, it, it really comes down from the Aleutian Islands up in Alaska. That's why it's so cold, just the way it kind of rotates. And anyway, being wet and cold is way different than a snow day in Colorado. Right. Ten throwing snow, snowballs, you know, so I yeah. got humbled real quick. For those of you listening that, that may not be from uh, the Western United States or have never seen uh, the Pacific Ocean in California is not the same Pacific Ocean that you get off the coast of Hawaii. Uh, plain, yeah. plain and simple. There's like, I, I dove off of Hawaii in basically uh, like a rash guard and <laughs> board shorts, and I won't touch California with anything less than like a dry suit. So, uh, yeah, it, yeah. There's sure. I, a previous previous <laughs> guest I had on the show, Kevin Kemmerling, is a rescue dive uh, lieutenant out of California, and uh, he's tr- he wants to. He and I were talking about. Uh, wanting to go out to Catalina Island. And I was like, yeah, I don't own a fucking wetsuit thick enough for that water, man. I'm going to have to figure something out until yeah. then. Yeah. Uh, they don't make it thick enough. Yeah. yeah no, sure don't. Sure don't. That water is going to be cold no matter what you do. Uh, but you brought up a great point, man, that I think is, uh, is valid. Uh, you, you know, you can, you can take it over and not, I am not equating police or fire academies to buds. It is, those are different ball games. Um, but you said, you, you know, you'd look out across the across the water and see those those naval ships on the horizon. And you just knew that that no, I'm not I'm not going back to that. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, uh, several times when uh, you went to did you go to the Phoenix Police Academy down there off South Mountain? I did the Aaliyah, the yeah, Aaliyah, the yeah, Academy there. Yeah, yeah there, yeah. there were plenty of times running those trails because, uh, again, having not been in the military, the, for a lot of people, the police academy or their fire academy, wherever they're going, that is the most physically and mentally demanding thing that they've ever done in their entire life up to that point. Um, myself, Absolutely, even in, yeah. included, and there were plenty of times running those godforsaken trails on that mountain that I still don't mm-hmm. like, um, where I was just thinking to myself, "Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not going back." to, to what I was doing, man. I, uh, I was doing, I was doing pest control for the family business and and it was a, it's a business that my dad built from the ground up in like 1982 or 83. Um, but it just wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea, wasn't my ball game. And I just was like, yeah, I'm not like, I'm not going to quit because that this is all going to be over, right? They only keep us until like four ish PM. And, and then Mm -hmm. maybe maybe I've got to go run some trails after that for, for disciplinary shit. But that, that's not going to be that long from now. Like get to the end of the day and then you go to bed and you yeah. wake up the next morning and you're like, all right, shit, I can do this again. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just a bunch of small victories. You get confident and confident. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned that because we had, uh, I would say five or six, uh, former military veterans in my Academy class. And, and a couple of them were kind of belittling the other recruits and stuff. And we were all older. 
I was 35 when I went through and they were like in their late twenties, some in their early thirties. And so I huddled them up and said, guys, don't for some of these dudes, this is their dream. And this is the first time they've experienced this environment. Yeah. It's not Marine boot camp. It's not buds, but to these guys, it is, it's all relative. Like you said, for some people, it might be the first physical thing that they've really done. In fact, uh, the DT portion was a kick in the ass. I mean, they really come at you and fuck you up. Like there were portions of the academy that I was like, this is really cool. Like they're doing a good job. And for some of these kids, it's the first time they've been in a fight or the first time they shot a gun. And so we quickly kind of clicked up and realized we can't steal this moment. Because imagine if some dude came into Buds and belittled it and shit all over us and popped our little balloon and we were, we were bummed, you know what I mean? So um, the academy is monumental to people who this is the first time they've been through it. And even for me, who's been through multiple selection processes, it was legit. I mean, it was, you have to put out, you have to be smart and learn all the shit and make decisions. And in some ways it was more difficult because um, in, in special operations, uh, the amount of decisions you have to make is actually less than as a cop, as you know, when a situation is starting to go south as a cop, there's a lot more things running through your mind than if you're over in the sandbox. I mean, it's pretty black and white in most cases overseas, whereas when you're on the street of whatever city you're patrolling, there's a lot of repercussions for bad decisions. And so um, the academy, I thought, did a good job with some scenario-based training and explaining things, especially to us military that I learned early on, you can't solve every problem with a gun. You know, I really had to throttle back and figure things out mentally and use verbal skills. And so even for us, there were different challenges. And, uh, and so I'm glad that we didn't shit on uh, the people who that was their first experience because it is epic. It's all, it's all relative. It's all in proportion to where you're at in life. And so I'm glad that uh, the few of us that were starting to shit on them, we quickly grouped together and said, hey, let these guys have their moment. And by the way, we're going to have some challenges that we have some hard wiring that's got to be redone. That's the hardest part is years and years of training. Obviously, you're not an assaulter. You know, you, you can't just <laughs> law enforcement's a different animal. Right. So we had to rewire our tendencies and, and figure some things out. So to be honest, I really enjoyed the process of my class. So, yeah. Yeah, I have a, a, a real good friend of mine based at my work wife, Brent. Shout out to Brent because I know he's going to listen to this episode. He's got a new kid. There's nothing else for him to do right now. Um, he, uh, <laughs> I, I remember asking him about it. Like, hey, what, you know, did you go to the academy and think like, this? really, this is hard? Or did you go to the academy and, and still have some sort of stress? And he said that it was a different kind of stress because he, having, he, he was airborne uh, in the Army. Uh, and and okay. having, having had military experience, especially as an infantry, uh, you know, an infantry guy with, uh, with combat experience in mm -hmm. Afghanistan, the, the physical stuff, the shooting like that, that was all kind of, you know, it is what it is, but it's the, yeah, it, kind of to your point. I mean, he, he said, he was like, we didn't have to like learn a whole entire book of fucking laws before we went to Afghanistan, like before, before they let yeah, me jump yeah. out of an airplane, like you, you know, if you, uh, you struggled with runs, uh, with, with doing, you know, runs and making time, then you would just, they would have you run more. Whereas if you failed a test mm -hmm. twice in the police academy, you're fucking out. You're done. You're done. Yeah. It was stressful. I luckily my study buddy, uh, got the, uh, the academic achievement award and he would just kind of highlight like, Hey, just focus on this stuff. Cause it was very hard. As you know, 
I mean, you not only learn in radio codes, you learn constitutional law. I mean, all this shit, report writing. I, in fact, when I got onto FTO, I showed my FTO uh, in Iraq when we would get in a gunfight, we would have to complete what we call a Foxtrot report, which is basically a three sentence email to our team, team leader in case the State Department or the Minister of Interior or the Prime Minister uh, inquired about it, because when Blackwater was kind of in the hot seat. So we had to document every time we got in a shootout. And I remember showing my FPO, like, look, dude, this is what happens when you open up on someone with an automatic weapon. Look at the shoplifting report we just wrote. There's something wrong with this shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is a 94-page shoplifting report from fucking Walmart. <laughs> they don't even want to prosecute the guy. Meanwhile, yeah. I get into a uh, fucking shootout in Ann Nazaria, and it's a three-sentence paragraph. <laughs> like It was. It was so simple. But our team leader said, less is more. Like You don't want too many details. Basically, where we were time of day, nuts and bolts of what happened. And so my FTO got a kick out of it. He was like, well, now I know why your report writing sucks. I'm like, well, <laughs> shit. You know, I didn't know I have to write a dissertation about little Billy that stole a fucking pair of shoes from Walmart. Damn. Each, each, so that was a challenge, though. Each know? police report is basically a college paper. So, yeah. It is. Well, as you know, I learned why after I got my lunch handed to me by an attorney in court. Holy shit. Because, you know, by the time it goes to court, whatever it is, what is it, six months, almost a year later, most times? And so you kind of remember the incident, but shit, you've been on hundreds of calls since then. You're like, ah. So your report is what you reference. And when you have a report, like I used to be written in crayon, you're like, I don't even know what day. I didn't even put the date down. Shit. So you learn to write good reports very quickly when you get embarrassed in court. So it is important for anyone that's looking at a law enforcement career, really focus on report writing because I got embarrassed before I realized, oh, this is why we write very detailed reports because it'll save your butt six months from now when you're looking stupid up on that stand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, we've all been there. We've all been the, the guy on the stand going, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't recall. I don't recall that either. I don't recall that. I don't recall. <laughs> like, you I don't know. even know where I'm at right now. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I just, I'm completely winging it. I had to ask a defense attorney uh, to give me a copy of a police report once because I didn't have my own. So oh, dude had to provide me a copy of my own police report. And yeah, you're absolutely right. You go through it and you're like, okay, these are all the ways that, that I can do uh, a whole heck of a lot better. And even now, I mean, now I'm up in, up in the land of detectives and uh, writing reports. Now it, it seems, you know, Shout out to to my supervisors, my sergeants that have kicked back reports for what I always thought was like a bullshit. Like, really, you want me to put that? Like, come on, you want me to put that in there? Mm. No, there there is a time and a place. Like, you make that report as detailed as possible. Um, uh, to those of you listening that are going in, but if you go to a barking dog call, we don't need to know the fucking breed of the dog. Okay, <laughs> I don't need to know that it was a male dog who eats two cups of food per day and has a brown spot on the left side of his tummy. Like, y you know when you need to write those excruciatingly detailed reports. Um, yeah, and I, I, I actually uh, one of the detectives that's training me right now. Um, read a report from a patrol officer and sent them an email saying how good their report was. I, I think there should be more of that. Uh, cause at that, that yeah, will, sure. that'll help, you know, those patrol officers will finally get a little bit of a, I don't know if I'd call that a reward per se, but they'll get a little bit of assurance that, Hey, like, yeah, you spent a long time writing that report, but we really appreciate it. 
So write your reports. Yeah, that is nice. Yeah, yeah. No, that is that'd be nice to get the feedback because it just always disappears into the detective world, and you're like, well, okay. Yeah, <laughs> but it's good to get feedback, especially positive feedback. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Rare. And <laughs> on the flip side of that coin, if it's negative feedback, take your licks, learn from it, and move on from it. Yeah. That's, you know, Absolutely. life, life lessons right there. Um, so Clark, when you, when you went into the Navy, man, it was, uh, it was 1995. Um, what was, mm-hmm. what was it like with the, uh, dare I say, peacetime military? Cause I know in the, you know, late nineties, we still had Kosovo, um, uh, you know, a handful of other things popping off, uh, you know, little, little hot spots around the world, but but what was uh, what was it like being in the military in the mid '90s and then transitioning, you know, and and kind of jocking up into like, holy fuck, we're at war. Yeah, well, it's very different realities for sure. We had been at peace for a long time. Um, very few little skirmishes, few and far between, you know, Grenada, Panama, things like that. Um, when I was in the regular Navy, believe it or not, my deployment in '96 was pretty eventful for being in the regular Navy. It was, uh, we had to go in the Persian Gulf. So going through the Straits of Hormuz is, uh, typically controlled by Iranian gunboats. So we had a lot of standoffs with them, but we'd have to go to general quarters and man, uh, my boat had a bunch of 50 cals and a 25 millimeter on the left side of it. And they would always do runs at us and stuff. So that was kind of a warm up. like, wow, there's actually people out here that could fuck with us and hurt us and shit. Um, at that time, we were enforcing UN sanctions against Iraq, and the game they would play is they would have these cargo ships that would bust out into the Gulf and then beeline straight for Iranian territorial waters. And there were so many of them doing that that the, the SEAL team that was stationed on the carrier couldn't keep up with it. So what they did is they trained every ship to have what they call a VBSS team, a Vessel Boarding Search and Seizure Team, and then they would stand by as like a QRF. If it got sketchy or something, they would fly in and support it. So it was kind of our opportunity to do stuff that you normally wouldn't do. Again, this is regular Navy. wasn't even the teams yet. Uh, my ship alone, we ended up doing seven real-world ship takedowns. And it was crazy. I was like, holy shit, man, I've been in the Navy five minutes, and now I'm crawling up this ladder with a shotgun strapped to my back. Like It was like, holy shit, this is pretty lit, man. Damn, I'm digging it. Uh, we also launched some tomahawks into Iraq. I think we were knocking out some radar facilities or something. And uh, and it was kind of funny because it was just our ship because we were the fastest ship. Our job was to protect the carrier. But we weren't nuclear powered. We had like four fucking turbine engines or something. We were a little hot rod. We were the Camaro of the group. So we left the battle group, went way up into the Gulf, launched a bunch of tomahawks into Iraq. And then turned around and hauled ass. So it reminded me of being a kid throwing a rock to your neighbor's window and then hauling ass. It was so funny to see that kind of on a military scale. Like, holy shit. I didn't know what was going on. I knew we were launching these missiles. And then you feel the ship quickly turn around. And when they hit, we call it flank three, that's pedal to the metal. The ship just kind of shakes. And you hear this. We were all an ass. It was so funny. I was like, it was like little kids, man. What's going on over here? So, uh, all in all, I was pretty pumped because I knew I was going to buds after that deployment. And I thought, holy shit, if the regular Navy's this crazy, launching missiles and taking ships down, damn, the teams is going to be nuts. So, when I got to the teams, special operations, peacetime versus special operations, wartime is a very different animal. And to be honest, 
even though you, you get into a lot more shit when there's a conventional war kicking off, the problem is even special operations become somewhat conventional. You basically become a Navy Ranger, you wear a bunch of body armor, you hop in an armored vehicle, and you go into town, kick doors, and, and break things. During peacetime, you actually are fulfilling the true special operations mission, and a lot of it is keeping tabs on things. It might be keeping tabs on what a, a Korean, a North Korean beachhead is doing, where they're keeping emplacements, you know, where are there rocky cliffs that you don't want to insert Marines at. So you might be keeping tabs on specific individuals. You might be keeping tabs specific locations in certain countries. So it's a lot more sneaky peaky stuff, which to be honest, I found more, more fun and more what I thought that it would be rolling around in an armored vehicle it's fun and you definitely get some, but to me, you become conventional in a conventional campaign. Whereas during peacetime, you're really off the map. Nobody knows what you're doing. Um, could be a hostage rescue. Uh, Denny Chalker in the book that you mentioned earlier, uh, wrote one perfect op, which was an amazing story. And he actually told us that story. He was my command master chief. When I went to buds, he told us that story is our, our hell week grief. And uh, he said not even a shot was fired, but it was his favorite op that he ever had been on. And I won't ruin the story. People should buy the book and read it for sure. Uh, Denny's an amazing dude. He also was one of my project managers when I was a contractor in Iraq. I was on a project with him. So it was kind of cool to see him outside the community as well. It was kind of intimidating, but he wasn't my command master chief at that point. So right. it was a little more of a friendly relationship. A little bit of a different um, dude there. Yeah, but even that, it wasn't one of these door kicking ops that was his favorite op. And so that's what special operations traditionally is during peacetime. It's, it's really doing that sneaky peaky shit, which is really what it's designed for. Um, there are other units that are designed for, you know, mass assaults and direct action. The teams are really wired for unconventional warfare. Yes, they're direct action capable for sure but it's the unconventional warfare aspect of the teams and a lot of special operations groups that I found fascinating. And, uh, and I really enjoyed uh, being a part of that era because it's going to be gone for a while. I don't know what the guys are doing currently, but obviously in the heat of the GWAT, uh, when I was contracting, the boys were just kicking doors, which again is great, but that's what Rangers are designed for. Marines are designed for. Team guys can do it for sure. But I just, I like the, uh, you know, kind of the off the grid, the low profile stuff uh, a lot more. I thought it was just more traditional for special operations. It was more of what I expected to be a part of. So I'm glad I got to be a part of kind of the last breath of that because, of course, when 9-11 happened, oh, shit. (laughs) Everything changed. changed. Oh, permanently, for sure. So I kind of got a last little glimpse as to, to how it was. And it's not bad. Maybe in some ways it's evolved into what it should be. I know the gear has changed a lot. The tactics have changed a lot. Um, so there's definitely some benefits from that, but it was kind of sad to see that chapter of the teams kind of fade away for sure. So there, there is a big difference, but it's probably, uh, it's probably at where it should be considering current times. So good on the guys out there still doing it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Absolutely, man. It, and it, it sounds like almost that, uh, uh, when you started out, uh, with uh, it was seal team five right mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. When you, so when you started out with seal team five it almost sounds like that was more of the 
the recruiting poster, the guy with the camo paint on his face and swimming <laughs> into a beach and, and you know, wearing, a, wearing a chest rig, like body armor, fuck body armor. That's going to make me sink yeah, and drown. We, like hundred <laughs> percent. We, well, and that's why when we would do ship takedowns, we just wore flight suits and uh, skateboard helmets, protect helmets. We had our MP5. We were the last of the MP5 generation. And now I used to do some training at tier one group. Uh, with active duty cast, we had some rain recon bubbles in there. And I'm like, holy shit, how much shit? <laughs> you guys are wearing everything. Like, but I mean, technology's evolved where now they have, uh, they call them PE plates, polyethylene plates, which are neutrally buoyant. And so they can wear body armor. Uh, the Mitch helmets that they wear are a lot more uh, ballistically savvy than a skateboard helmet. I gotta admit that. <laughs> we used to wear Chuck Taylors and shit. I mean, we looked like Tony Hawk climbing up that ladder to come shoot you with an MP5. But uh, it was just kind of what you would expect. Like when you see the old movies or the movie Navy Seals with Charlie Sheen, it was very little gear, uh, not a lot of technology because things like Red Dots hadn't evolved um, to the point where they were reliable. Anytime we get a new product, we would always dive it, jump it, and swim it to see if it would uh, withstand the elements. And oftentimes it would fail. You know, a seal would break and it would flood it and ruin it or whatever it was. So we were very shy of technology. It was still a lot of iron sights, a lot of green face paint type stuff, kind of left over from the Vietnam era, really. Sure. Um, the good thing about the global war on terror is technology just skyrocketed. I mean, the gear the guys were getting, the red dot systems, the lasers, the, uh, when I talk to active guys now, I had a laser called the PEC-2, which is big as a shoebox. And they're on like the PEC-15 or some shit now. Like it's involved so many generations and it's about the size of a pack of cigarettes. Right. Yeah. It's I'm smaller, like, oh, smaller than shit. the fucking iPhones that are out now. <laughs> yeah. And you is, could signal the, the damn space show. station if you needed to. So. What? Oh, the technology they have is amazing. Yeah. I can remember uh, uh, being on graveyards, uh, patrol graves in 2018. Um, and, uh, and there was this guy, Dan and anybody, uh, I don't, I don't really talk about the agency that I work for more just to keep the chief and, and people happy over there. But, uh, uh, there was this guy, Dan, who was on his, like, he had like a month left. Um, and here I am on a conducting a felony traffic stop by myself, uh, pull this dude over for running a stop sign. He's got more fuck it. I ran his name and I sounded like I was in a Vegas casino with all the slot machines dinging at me, my computer. I thought <laughs> I'm pretty sure the NSA knew who I had pulled over. Um, and I'm like, Oh shit, this is the first time this has ever happened to me. And then the dude wants to get out of his car. So it's like, all right, game time, uh, felony stop guns yeah. come out Well, gun comes out. And here I am with, you know, I got a weapon light on the bottom of my gun and all this shit. And, and Dan rolls up with the Smith and Wesson steel frame, like 10 shot gun that he was issued in 1989. Um, and, and just like, I was, I was, it was like watching, I don't even, it was like an out of body experience. Um, but, uh, but there's something to be said for, for the technology, man. I mean, even, I mean, shit, I've got, I've got my Glock 19 here with a fucking red dot mounted to the the slide of the gun um yep and and even now there's still questions you know you oh you have to get this specific rmr or if you get the other one you Ooh. have to get the correct battery plate because then it'll fail it's like what what am i gonna i'm gonna stick a 500 hundred dollar piece of equipment on my gun and it's gonna fail well and now obviously i mean they're at a point now where where red dots uh shit there are agencies issuing 
new recruits, people who have never used guns before, maybe some of them, you know, at least, uh, oh, but wow. they're issuing them their Glock 17s or their, their SIG P320s or whatever with their red dots on it. And, uh, you oh, know, I, wow. I, I look, I, I think back to friends of mine who were in the Marine Corps who shit themselves when Marine recruits get ACOGs and they had to qualify yes. iron sights. <laughs> so they don't even qualify iron sights no more, man. I'm like, I have a, a buddy of mine that a couple of years ago joined the Marines and he told me that I'm like, no way. Like, I knew they shot ACOGs, but I thought it would at least make you qual iron sights. And then because all that technology should supplement good tactics, good training, good skill set, it shouldn't replace it because what happens when that red dot fails or your ACOG breaks or whatever, million scenarios, you got to be able to make it run bare bones. And I guess, I don't know, man, they're taking shortcuts because for us, even with that technology as it was trickling in, we still had to be proficient with iron sights. We still had to be proficient with map and compass. And then GPS, red dots, those all added and supplemented uh, a good foundation. But if they're cutting right to that, man, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and that, how many batteries do you need? I used to ask these recon bubbles when I trained them, how many batteries do you need to operate? Yeah. So looking back on my time, it was, uh, I had, a couple of batteries in our MP5s, we had a pressure switch. That was it. I don't even know. I was a 60 gunner, so I didn't have a light on that thing. But uh, the muzzle flash was the light. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, you, you going cyclic, was that was enough to, to give. The people saw the light when that happened. Yeah, well, well and, and, that's the thing. They know where the big gun's at. They know yeah. where the big gun's at. Put the... <laughs> I, yeah, I, oh, shit, I, I mean, I have uh, batteries for the red dot on my rifle, batteries for the red dot on my pistol. I've got... Well, when I was on patrol, I had three fucking flashlights, uh, uh, two, two of which, thankfully, were rechargeable. Um, That'll save you some money. Yeah. Save you some money. Yeah. And, and thank God I work for an agency that supplies double and triple A batteries. And if you ask really nicely, the supply people will give you CR-123s because those motherfuckers are expensive. Oh. And Those every weapon yeah. light is basically running on CR-123s now. And I don't want to spend $20 every two months yeah. to put batteries in it. But yeah. I, <laughs> so, uh, uh, what was, uh, were you, were you still in, in the T cause you got out? No one. Were you out, uh, pre nine 11 or post nine 11? I do five months before nine 11 happened. I was so pissed. I was, uh, having some fun in Thailand when nine 11 happened. I'm like, are you kidding me? Fuck. I just got out, man. I didn't know what was going to happen. Are they going to pull me back in? I mean, obviously I knew I had to get back. Uh, at some point, I just thought, you know, when you see that happen, it was a, a very weird experience um, to be away from America and watch that happen. I just felt like I got to get home to my people. Like, this is horrible. And that's what I did. Now, the weird part of this is I called a lot of my team guy buddies and thought, hey, guys, what's happening? What's happening? I was going to figure out my way to get back in the team. And everyone I talked to said the teams aren't doing shit. It's, uh, it's Rangers and Green Berets. Rangers and SF are the ones that are jumping into the fight in Afghanistan. And it blew me away. Like, what the fuck? And it turns out in, in the modern battlefield, at least during the kickoff and in the bulk of the GWAT, the Global War and Terror, uh, Big Army ran the show. So I guess it's like if your dad's the coach. He's going to put you in. I don't know. But the teams had a very limited role for a very long time. Um, all of their advice was, if you want to get into the fight, Rangers and SF. So in my career in the teams, we had worked a lot with uh, some first group dudes out of Okinawa. 
they're a SIF company. It's kind of their direct action element. Because not every Greenberry is direct action. It's kind of weird. I had to learn the hard way. But my SIF buddies are the ones that turned me on to 19th Group. They said the quickest way to get into the SF community is through 19th and 20th Group. It's a reserve unit to the National Guard. Why it's attached to the National Guard, I don't know. Um, but that's exactly what I did. I ended up moving back to Colorado and, uh, and joined up with 19th Group. And, uh, and it was a great experience. I love the unit that I was attached to. The drama started. Uh, this is kind of like my Marine Corps experience. You have some wins. You have some losses. I think this is kind of a draw. <laughs> the Marine Corps OCS is a loss for sure. Uh, I did well in the teams, had a good time, uh, but decided to try to get in this route. And my unit gave me a waiver for selection, which just sounded weird to me. Like, well, why can't I just go to selection? Like they said, no, you're a fully qualified operator. You've deployed. There's no reason for you to go to selection. It's stupid. You should go right into second phase, which is small unit tactics. And I'm like, look, I get it. But I don't want to be that asshole that shows up to Fort Bragg with a little piece of paper saying, Clarky's special. He doesn't have to do selection. They're like, nope, it's our call. We've already informed the chain of command out there, Brad. You'll be fine. And turns out I wasn't fine. I show up like an asshole with that piece of paper. <laughs> and they were like, who the fuck are you? I was like, I don't know. So I was a square peg in the round hole uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks. They didn't know what phase to put me in. That particular chain of command had never had a SEAL come through their ranks. So they had no idea what to do with me. And it turned into a pissing contest between Fort Bragg and Colorado. I was stationed out of Watkins in Colorado. So it was kind of like watching mom and dad have a fight. Like, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I'm at Fort Bragg, but you guys are my unit back home. I just want to phase the training. I'll go to selection. I'll go to SOPSI 1, SOPSI 2, SEER school again, whatever you want me to do. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> so uh, how I fell into contracting was bitching to one of my field buddies that, man, Fort Bragg's not working out. Like, I can't even get into a phase of training. I report to the National Guard liaison. He says, nope, we haven't figured it out. Come back tomorrow at 9 a.m. And I do. That's my job. I'm like, this is ridiculous. So he told me about uh, DynCorp was protecting President Karzai in Afghanistan. And he could put me in touch with one of our mutual buddies that was out there running it. And so I sent DC an email. And uh, he gave me the DynCorp recruiter's information. I explained to him my situation. Hey, I'm in the National Guard. I'm at Fort Bragg trying to get a phase of training. I've been here for weeks, I'm getting kind of pissed off, but I've heard about what you guys are doing, and I heard the pay skills pretty legit. What do we? <laughs> what do you guys got going on? So he gave me the details, and I thought, holy shit, this is awesome. Uh, as an E5 in the Army at the time, I was making about two grand a month. Uh, as a contractor, they were going to start me out at twelve grand a month. Holy shit! I was like, yeah, that's a pay jump. I was like. Done. Okay, well, I'm going to end this show and go and sign up to be a contractor. Twelve grand a month. God dang. Well, it ended up being more than that because by the time I got online, it was five hundred bucks a day was the, the average going rate. So when you're overseas, uh, typically we're three months in country working, and then you get flown home for a month. So that five hundred bucks a day in a thirty day month that's fifteen grand a month. So it was significant pay jump. So I'm glad things happened the way it did. I was a little bummed. I was looking forward to how balanced of an operator I would have been to have, have, have had my time in the team and then been fully qualified uh, as a Green Beret 
I would have been a phenomenal operator having been on both sides of the fence. Um, I really look forward to that opportunity, but I got so frustrated just week after week after week. Like, and I was so humble, just like, hey, I'm here to train. Put me in whatever phase you want. And my unit back home in Fort Bragg just locked horns. And it just, it kind of sucked that I slipped through the cracks that way. But I'm very grateful that I got uh, the contracting gig I did. I went through their selection process, which I thought was fun. It was just three weeks of uh, basic assessment. Um, you know, some flat range work, handgun rifle, <clears throat> a lot of scenario driven stuff, what we call attack on principle, attack on motorcade. They would ambush you as you're walking with your VIP or they would, using some munitions, they would ambush your vehicles. And um, it was introducing us into really the life and secret service. They had secret service guys there teaching it, how motorcades work, how protective, uh, you know, the diamond formations and other things work, route reconnaissance, the advanced team checking out locations. So I found it interesting. I really liked it. Naturally, I've always been kind of a protector. Like when I played hockey, I was a defenseman. I played little league football as a kid. I was a linebacker. I like the being able to respond to stuff. I find it much more interesting than when you're on offense, everything's choreographed, everything's planned. You have to memorize a bunch of shit. When you're on defense, you just have to think on your feet. So I quickly um, took a liking to this protective work. So I really like this. I like trying to figure out where the bad guy is going to be. And now I went from the ambusher to the ambushee. So I have to think to myself, if I was an asshole, where would I be? You have to just really figure out different scenarios depending uh, on your specific job. Are you part of the counter-assault team? Are you part of the advanced team? So I was really digging this. Like, this is pretty legit. Got thrown a little bit of a curveball. Ended up weren't going to Afghanistan. They needed our class to go to Israel. I was like, all right, let's do it. So we fly into Israel, and uh, all of our leadership at that time in Israel were all ex-Delta dudes. And I tell you, I really had to fake the funk. Uh, I only had eight years of military experience. Most of the guys my age had about the same six to ten years. All these Delta guys were Jedis. They had 20, 24 years in, all of it at the unit. You're like, holy shit. So I had to kind of fake the funk. You know? I was like, yeah, I could do this. Yeah. You know, they throw your gear. Here's your weapons. The next day we're driving around Gaza, which is a very dangerous place. So I was humbled very quickly, learned a lot from those dudes. And I thought to myself, wow, I didn't even plan on this career path. But here I am in Israel, like locked and loaded, real world shit. None of this, you know, hanging out at Fort Bragg, wondering when I could get into Sears school shit. So as disappointed as I was, knocking on the uh, the SF community's door. I really felt blessed to get the the detail that I was on in Israel with these guys. It was, I learned a lot very quickly. It was, uh, it was kind of opposite of the military. For example, in the team, we will do a workup for a year and a half for a six month deployment. And there's a reason for that. You know, you have to gel as a unit. And you become so cohesive that you just know what everyone's thinking and doing and there's a reason for that but contracting they relied heavily on your former background and they assembled their teams very quickly and went into Indian country ASAP I and mean, you were in red zones the next day thinking holy shit <laughs> it was very humbling we took a lot of uh, small arms fire week six we had one of our teams get blown up and three guys killed and so it became very real for me very quickly um, I hadn't been 
had not sent home boxes up until that point. So I didn't realize, uh, you know, the wrong end of a gunfight and, and other things, the, the consequences involved in those type of operations. So for me, Israel was the two years I was there was very pivotal, learned a lot. And it really set the tone for, uh, I ended up going to Afghanistan and Iraq as a contractor and it all kind of built upon itself. I always tell people, what I didn't see in the military, I saw as a contractor. And then come to find out what I didn't see as a contractor, I saw as a cop. As you know, you'll see some shit as a cop that Army Rangers don't see. or You know what I mean? It's just right, it's such right. a different line of work. Um, so it, I was very blessed to have, to have kind of really worn three hats throughout my, uh, my career as far as uniform service. And so contracting, <coughs> excuse me. I was gone a lot more contracting than I was in the military. Uh, and I realized when I was in Iraq in 07 that my toddlers had now become teenagers. And I really felt this pull to come home. And I, I thought, well, what what can I do stateside? What can I do back in America? And then it occurred to me, shit, maybe I could become a cop. I mean, it, it kind of started out as like an afterthought. How could I reinvent myself? But I really thought, well, shit. You know, I talked to a couple of my contractor buddies. One was a, a SWAT cop from Chicago. Another one was a SWAT cop from Florida. So they gave me some advice. They got me thinking about it. And that's kind of what led me to uh, to my Phoenix career. So I was very lucky to always land on my feet. Even when things weren't quite working out, the Marine Corps wasn't working out, bam, I did good in the Navy. Left the Navy, holy shit, 9-11. All right, got to go back home, get in the fight. 19th Troop, eh. The unit was great, some great training, loved working with those guys, but Fort Bragg was a, a train wreck. Uh, contracting, amazing. Sometimes you catch that wave, right? It's just that, that one that rides you all the way in. For me, that was contracting. But now I realized I've been gone way too long from home, and my little ones don't even know who I am. So that's what started my gears spinning towards law enforcement. And uh, my brother just happened to be living in Phoenix. So I got on Phoenix's website and they said, like, I don't know, now hiring 300 officers or maybe it was even 500. I don't know. It was a huge hiring thing. So I thought, well, if I'm going to slip through the cracks. Let's do this one. Right. So back right. home, the sheriff's office was like, well, we got like two slots and there's 3,000 applicants. So I'm like, oh, yeah, they're going to sniff me out way too quick. So <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it's like that, man. You'll t- when I started testing... Uh, my big secret, which I'm going to say on a podcast, uh, is that I wanted to be a firefighter and I can distinctly remember, uh, like testing for Phoenix fire department with like 5,000 other people. And that was on one day and they had like two or three days of testing. Oh, And, and, uh, even when I when I tested into the agency that I work for, there were probably, I don't know, seven or 800 initial applicants. And what you learn real quick about the testing process for policing is that each stage in the process knocks the numbers down by about half. So you'll you'll go oh, yeah. through and and uh, how do you remember, Clark, how long your background process was? Yeah, it took five and a half months. For yeah. them to dig through all my stuff. Because in the military, I just traveled so much. And, you know, they're very thorough. They verify. They talk to ex-wives. 
it's yeah, five and a half months and I finally got the call to, to come on in. So yeah. Yeah. My background investigator asked for one of my ex-girlfriend's current addresses and I was like, fucking really? You, because I lived with her for three months and that turned into a, you, yeah. yeah, let me just hop on Facebook real quick and message her. Sure enough, I did. And I'm pretty sure that I printed out my attempt to show, hey, I tried to get you the information that you wanted. And she told me to go fuck myself. So yeah. I'm pretty sure yeah. that uh, yeah. that my background investigator did that just for laughs. But uh, yeah, it's it's a five, <laughs> you know, five, six shit, nine month process for some of these agencies for the background process. Yeah. And you'll lose about half the people that applied. Um, uh, and actually before that, even you'll get your, your initial applicants, um, you'll get, you know, 700 people take the written test and about 350 people pass it. And then, uh, yeah. you know, you go down there again, half as many pass the physical fitness portion of the test and then half mm -hmm. that number go through and successfully complete the background pro process, usually for yeah. stupid shit. If any of you are listening to this and thinking, I think I'm going to go be a cop. Don't fucking lie on the background form or don't, don't omit yeah. information. They, they will, they will find out. They will find they out. Will find that out. is their, and you're done. And you're done. You're done. You're done. And you're probably yeah. done for any subsequent application <laughs> thereafter because they talk. You know, mm -hmm. you go and you go Absolutely. and apply for for Phoenix, uh, and you don't make it through, and then you go out to like uh, you know Indianapolis. Well, Indianapolis is gonna you know <laughs> why why duplicate the work? Let me just get a hold of Phoenix PD, and oh, you fucking lied to him. Well, I'm not gonna have you come to this agency. So, hundred uh, percent. No matter what it is, be honest about it, because some of the stuff you don't think they'll work with, they do. Some things they can't work with, and they'll tell you. But I would rather know right up front, like whatever. Hey, when I was in high school, I had a blow problem. Okay. Well, we can't take you. I would rather know it right there than lie about it. And then they will find out somehow, some way, and then you're done for being a liar. So whatever it is in your past, uh, most of us have some stupid shit we did as a kid. Just be honest with them about it. And they'll, if it's one of those items they can work with then they'll work with it, but there are some things that if you've done, they just, they, you don't qualify to become a, a cop, but I would rather know up front than trying to play the game and then they catch you in a lie, and then you're just you're a shitbag for not only being a dirty kid, but being a liar as an adult. They will find out, I promise you. Yeah, absolutely. So, Clark, when you get to the uh, uh, Arizona Law Enforcement Academy, what was your class number? Man, I get asked that. It was either 427 or 437, if I can remember correctly. It's, uh, man, I hope I'm not messing that up. Uh, maybe some of my academy made to listen and say no idiot send me the right number uh, you know what oh uh, i don't want to waste time but i can look through a folder and find out i want to say it was 427 437 i can't remember but i went uh in 08 so if that gives any kind of time frame to it well and then they had the, a Whatever. huge hiring freeze because you you you, le you left policing in two that when in 2016 do you remember like what month it was I want to say it was December. So you I don't you, know for sure though. Yeah. You left right as I was starting. I started the academy in November of 2016 with class four nine eight. Um uh, four, okay. so I'm probably pretty close with my numbers. Yeah. Yeah, I, think, four, I would say probably if you want to be way off, right? Like it's class two thirty seven you yeah. like, oh shit, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No one in your right though. They I think we were one of the last few classes. And they just, so I was a career rookie, which made it pretty frustrating because obviously seniority helps when you're testing for different units or just getting a good squad. So a couple of years into my career, they did a, a, 
department-wide rebid, which they hadn't done in decades or a long time anyway. I don't know the exact time frame on it, but I was like, damn, I mean, I got lucky out of the academy. I got South Mountain Precinct and I got a really good squad. Uh, after FTO, I got a good, my probationary squad, 41 Frank was, uh, no, 42 Frank. Great group of guys, great sergeant. They had some senior dudes on there that were very knowledgeable, very hungry. Um, and I really was great days off, great hours, great squad. We also had two training squads under us. So we could take time to like hunt for, you know, 1051s, you know, felony warrants and shit. So I was learning a lot of other things about law enforcement than just taking calls. And when this rebid came down the pipe, I'm like, damn, there's parties over for sure. Cause I got super lucky to be on the squad that I got. So I was kind of, kind of bummed, but I was a career rookie. And so things like rebid, it just starts at the senior dude. They pick whatever squad they want. It trickles all the way down to little fucking Clarky. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was, it was tough being a career rookie for sure. Cause it just kind of, Eventually, they froze because of manpower issues. Uh, unless you made number one on the list, you weren't going to go to whatever unit you were testing. And so there was some frustrations for sure. Yeah. Um, but I start, started out very blessed. South Mountain Precinct is a great place to work. South Phoenix is extremely busy. And uh, kind of like I said before, the shit that I saw in the military as a contractor didn't prepare me for what I saw as a cop. It is some weird shit you see as a cop. So I know society tends to ooh and awe at SEALs and Delta and Rangers and all the sexy stuff. But I tell you, cops get into some shit and it's, it's really the only awareness of cops that you're, you're privy to as a, as a regular civilian is all the negative stuff. You don't realize that for every one fuck up that the news media runs wild with, there are thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of great things men and women law enforcement do every fucking night. I was amazed at some of the talent I worked with, some of the compassion, the intellect, the problem-solving skills. I was really in awe because there are so many scenarios that come at you in a shift. It's way more difficult. I tell people all the time when they ask, being a cop was way harder than being a SEAL. Um, not physically, but just actually doing the job and making those decisions. Oftentimes, split-second decisions with repercussions of losing your job or ending up in jail yourself if you make the wrong decision. How quickly cops have to calculate their shit. So I was truly humbled in South Phoenix by the men and women I got to work with, the situations I was put into. I mean, they did a drive-by on our precinct. That's how bold these dudes are. Just lit up the front end of our precinct and got away with it. We never caught them. That's a wake-up call. Yeah, I know. I was in, in, I was crossloading some gear uh, for my patrol car to my POV. And my partner and I were, and we heard them. Bup, 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 and I was like, holy fuck, you sound like Iraq. So we jumped back in our patrol car, and there was probably 10 cars trying to get out of the back gate and chase this dude down and figure out who did it. Um, but I was very impressed, like, at the professionalism and in the real world shit that happens every day. As you know, as a cop, when you drive out the gate to the precinct, you don't know what's going to happen. When you're in the military, you have a good idea what's going to happen. You're on offense. You're going to determine who, what, when, where, why. Kind of like a SWAT team will do. Hey, we're going to go after this bad guy today. We think he's over here. Well, that's how special operations is. Hey, we're going to go get this guy. Intel says he's going to be here today. Let's go snatch him up, capture, kill, whatever. There are some benefits to that. You have assets in place. You have more people with you with more firepower. As a cop, 
oftentimes it's just you. You're rolling out solo. Your primary weapon is a fucking Glock. You might have an AR in the trunk or on the stand between the front seats, but it's, uh, you don't know what's going to happen at that traffic light, at that bathroom break. You're just trying to eat. So I really learned quickly that the day-to-day dangers that law enforcement face um, might not be as dynamic as overseas, but it's way more dangerous because you're by yourself and it's uh, kind of like swimming in the ocean, man. You never know when that shark's going to bite you. Just driving around South Phoenix, man, I was just waiting for that shark attack. Like, fuck, yeah. kind of creepy, you know? So it, it definitely opened my eyes to some different things. And to this day, I'm a huge supporter of uh, my brothers and sisters in blue. I just, especially with current events, which you, you've gone through, you know, I got out, I kind of had a habit of this. I got out right before 9-11. <laughs> I got left law enforcement right before all this defund the police. I don't know if it's good luck or bad luck, but even my mom said that. Wow, you have a knack for knowing when to leave the party. <laughs> and well, I kind of, I want to say for that, that's the part of the party I was there for in the beginning, man. When it, when times are tough is when I really want to be there, uh, with my brothers. But, uh, this whole defund the police stuff has really been difficult. And I'm sure you've had to deal with it. And, uh, you know, it, it does make me wish like, damn, why did I get out? So I kind of, I have a pattern of doing this, but it's not intentional when it's time to leave. It's time to leave. I'm very nomadic by nature and looking back on it, I wouldn't change it for a thing. You know, when it, my time is done, I move on to something else. And each opportunity has just been better and more amazing. And to have, such a broad group of friends and brothers that I have is, is amazing through contracting, through the military, through law enforcement. It's been an amazing journey. So for a lot of people out there um, that think they're stuck in one career or, hey, I got to do my 20, if you're not happy, find something else. I was blessed to, to go kind of to those three main categories. I've done some other smaller things, not as significant, but I wouldn't trade those friendships or those memories for anything in the world. So don't feel like you're stuck somewhere. You can always change it up even if it's within your department you can change it up but don't be afraid to try something else out man variety is the spice of life and looking back on mine i'm i'm glad i did what i did i probably pissed a few people off here and there um in fact if phoenix psb is listening to it i miss you guys (laughs) (laughs) our professional standards bureau man that's our ia I tell you, I had my own parking spot. Back had there, had, a, had your own your own worn in spot on the couch, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, it was my first name basis. Like, hey, Clark. Hey, Tom. Hey, Jennifer. How are the kids? Right on. You know, I was like, God, oh, man, I was down there so, so much. So I'm back. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'd hey, like to fellas, call the I'd like to call weeks. this new policy Clark's policy, if that's okay with everyone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is definitely some shenanigans. But I really enjoyed my time, and I can't wait to get back there. We, you and I were talking before. I'm, I'm stuck in California, and uh, I would love to get back to the Phoenix area. And when I do, I'd like to chill in your studio, man. We can yeah, do another yeah. uh, follow-up episode. Do a follow-up <laughs> episode, absolutely. Have you? I have a, uh, a thin blue line American flag hanging in here, so all my in-studio guests, I have them sign and date the flag. Um, and, oh, uh, nice. Shout out, shout out to my buddy Cody, who is going to magically put the uh, Curio Cabinet Entertainment Center thing that's in like 49,000 pieces up against the wall. He's going to put that all together, uh, <laughs> sand, nice. it, sand it out and repaint it. Uh, so big shout out to him. Uh, I, I, I'm a little curious, uh, when, when you're at 
just to to quickly kind of circle back. Oh, geez, I'd say I said circle back. I turned into that asshole. Oh, oh man. Um, uh, <laughs> when you're at the academy, you know, it's, it's fairly well known kind of at least in my class, we knew who the veterans were. We put them in charge of our class as class leaders. We were ordinarily you only have one class leader, um, but we we selected there were four squads. Yeah, four squads, and we chose uh, three out of the four were veterans. Um, was there this? Did people try to put you on a like they they knew like holy shit this dude was a seal and he's a fucking contractor in Iraq like dude's got combat experience and like real world experience. Did were people kind of like putting you on a pedestal while you were there and you were just uh, just just in the the hour or so that I've talked to you, man? I know that you're not the type of guy to ever accept that, but I, I'm just a little curious to know if the the folks in your academy class were just like, oh my god, this guy had a trident and did all these things. I think there was some of that uh, at first, but uh, like you said, they made us all squad leaders, and one of the the powwows we quickly had is that. The harder we are on ourselves, the less the cadre will fuck with us. We can do a lot of our own self-policing, and that way it makes it kind of easier to interact with the instructor staff that's there. And so our class gelled very quickly under the leadership of us former military guys. And, and as far as me specifically, and I really encourage the other guys to think the same way, I think that the, my classmates there, if you were to ask them, um, they were surprised that I was a humble guy. And they realized that I was in it with them. We're all in this together, that none of that stuff matters. Like we're in this scenario together and we're going to make it a great experience. So I think they were surprised. I think at first, um, the cadre at first kind of made a big deal about it. Um, the, the main dude that used to kind of strut around and yell at everybody dimed us out right away because he's a retired Marine. So first day in formation, he was like, where's all my military dudes are? step forward and so he went down the line and asked us and it was like ah oh, shit dude talk about putting my bullseye in your back but again even the staff realized that we were humble and there for this event to occur um i did have the lieutenant that was in charge of training during one inspection he wanted to see all my certificates he had me bring them in on a monday i thought that was kind of weird so i don't know if he was trying to verify I was who I say was like, he kind of had a boner for me. Um, but once I gave him all my certs, he was cool. And he would always challenge me on the, uh, the trail runs and stuff that you were talking about. He'd always make sure I was right on his heels and stuff. So we ended up, uh, becoming good friends towards, uh, towards the end. He actually, I got the firearms achievement award. So he presented it to me at Academy graduation and, I remember joking with him, like, you were kind of a dick in the beginning, bro. I don't know if I want to <laughs> <laughs> accept this award. For... He was like, ah, I had to sniff you out, you know, make sure you're a good dude. I think they thought maybe there would be some ego attached to it or something. But the sure, cadre sure. and my classmates, they quickly learned that just a goofy dude from Colorado, man. So uh, don't forget, there's there's the dude, sprinkle Captain America, and then pouring a little Poly Shore. That's probably the blend of... Uh, what you see when you meet Hell me. Yeah. So I, <laughs> uh, to, to, to dive back into uh, when you were with Phoenix PD, man, you worked patrol and then uh, you ended up, did, were, you ended up with the narcotics unit. Was that like a, uh, something that interested you from the beginning or was that something that, that, you know, someone kind of grabbed you by the shirt collar and was like, Hey man, I think you should check this out. 
Yeah, it was a creepy locker room scene, man. I obviously I joined coming to my background. I thought, okay, SWAT sounds cool. Um, even before I got hired through mutual friends, I met a senior dude on, on Phoenix SAU. And so I did some ride alongs with them and some temporary assignments with the guys, great unit, great guys, always had a good time. But at that time they had a policy. You had to do three years in patrol before you could test for SAU. So I thought, okay, cool. I'll just do my time. And, um, quickly within a year, uh, this undercover dude approached me in the locker room and said, Hey, why don't you do ride along with us it's in precinct i'm sure i know your patrol sergeant we were in patrol back in the day i know you want to go sau but you got to wait three years maybe you come hang out with us and i thought okay well what is it you guys do and he said that uh there's different like neighborhood enforcement teams and the unit i ended up going to was nicknamed walking beat i think because it used to be an old downtown unit or why it has a nickname walking beat i don't know but they are in charge of the project the uh, crime-free multi-housing in South Phoenix and the homeless shelter. So obviously those two locations have a lot of drug trafficking, a lot of, you know, dopes being spun in those particular areas. So that's what they focus on. Whereas the, the other net teams focus on um, like a, what do they call it? Not a beat area, but like a squad area. So you'd have, you know, 41 x-ray, 42 x-ray. So we were 46 x-ray. Again, our focus was the homeless shelter and then the projects. So I thought, yeah, sure, I got nothing going on. If you can set it up with my patrol sergeant, I'll hang out with you guys for a couple of weeks. Knew nothing of plain clothes, but they liked me because of my tattoos. And uh, and I didn't act like a cop. I'm laid back, kind of silly dude. can kind of talk to anybody. So uh, my friend Bobby, who I think is still with Phoenix, said, why don't you just, you know, jump in the car with me and we'll run around and kind of get you introduced to the, the plain clothes world. So I, I had fun, man. He told me, don't shower, don't shave. I thought, finally, something I can do in law enforcement. I'm I good at good that. that <laughs> I can do this. I can do this shit. I can't type a report, but man, I cannot shower like a champ. I like this already, man. And it was fun, man. It was what I enjoyed with that on my, my temp, which was my introduction to this community was you really have the ability to think outside the box. It's not just responding to radio traffic or, you know, looking up the next call in your beat area on your MDT, your laptop there. I really enjoy the creativity of the plain clothes world really reminded me of my special operations background. Cause again, when I was in, it wasn't, it was peacetime. So we had to be creative to get missions for ourselves. Whereas opposed to, you know, a shit ton of work that had to be done uh, when, 9-11 happened, I really had to relate to that kind of outside the box. How can we get things done? What's out there? So I really enjoyed that aspect of it, the creative part of it. I learned how to author, write up search warrants and shit, affidavits to get them signed. And so I really saw a whole side of it um, that really fascinated me. The actual hand-to-hands being plain clothes and stuff made me nervous because I was always used to me dealing with the bad guys in some dynamic fashion, but I was in uniform. They knew who I was. I was coming no matter what. This undercover stuff is a little bit creepier than that because you're right up with these guys. They get in the car with you. You don't have body armor on. You can't pat them down. You know, as a cop, there's certain barriers of safety you have in place. You have a radio, whatever. You can call for backup quickly. When I was driving around with Bobby, it was pretty scary. People get in the car with you, you don't know. Does he have a gun? Does he have a knife? What's his intent, her intentions? 
We would go to people's houses. But I was amazed at how skillful he was uh, with the gift of gab, the way he could talk to people. And it was just amazing. So it took me a while to kind of break out of my shell. Um, as far as that temp, I actually ended up getting into an officer-involved shooting on a hand-to-hand my third day on the temp. So my temp got cut short. <laughs> Luckily, it went down fairly well. But for the rest of my time in Phoenix, it was always a joke. Anytime I did a temp with somebody, they're like, you're not shooting anybody, are you? I'm like, God, it happened once. But I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, you get into exactly. the next car. Like, give, give me the fucking gun. Give me, give me your gun. <laughs> yeah, give, give them that wooden gun. <laughs> give them the wooden pistol. But it was, it was funny when I did my walkthrough with the homicide detective. He said, before we go on tape, we have some questions for you. And uh, I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. He goes, how long have you been on the job? How long have you been with the department? I said, oh, about a year and a half. And he goes, you're already playing clothes? I said, oh, no, I'm on temporary assignment. <laughs> he just starts laughing. He goes, you're on temporary assignment and you got in a shooting? I'm like, wow, I mean, yeah. He said, how long I didn't fucking do it on purpose. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not like I, made, I wanted this to happen. I'm, I'm still trying to learn the, you know, this is the day three. Like, I still have no idea what this whole new world of plain clothes shit's like. Yeah, I didn't want this to happen. Um, but he said, how long are you, you've been on the attempt? And I said, this is my third day. And he just started laughing. He was like, holy shit, kid, you, you're off to a good start. I said, well, thank you, sir. Yeah. I took it good that the, the homicide detective doing the, the walkthrough was laughing. And, and I felt like... Uh, I was in good hands, and uh, and it went well. It was, you know, ended up being just fine. But uh, still, it was very, very kind of crazy, confusing times, you know. Long story short, though, I ended up going back to patrol, even though my temp got cut short. And I tested the next year full-time for that unit, made it. I made number three on the list, and they took, I think, four. And so I found a home on Walking Beat, 46 X-Ray, and loved it loved it absolutely loved it it was just one of those units that could we were kind of like uh the precinct commander's private little hit squad like whatever he needed done we could do it if we needed to go support first fridays downtown or whatever it is we needed to do um during the sb 1070 protest we had a plain clothes capacity that would you know go out and check things out and so it was it was interesting i really really enjoyed it until we got a new chief um who disbanded the unit. And I was really bummed. I was like, man, I kind of knew that was the beginning of the end because as you know, you can't see how the other half lives and then go back to patrol because as a plainclothes guy, I could eat lunch whenever I wanted. Our hours were flexible because obviously if you're working somebody, it's not just your typical work schedule. So you could get some overtime or shift the day off. Like it was very fluid and very creative. And now I had to go back to patrol and suffer another rebid. I ended up on graveyards in an area that I wasn't too stoked about. And I was like, fuck, man. So I just, I was kind of like, I'm a career rookie. Now I'm back in patrol. The chances of me getting where is like, fuck, man. I just, I just kind of got tired of it. And, and politics had really, uh, the beginning of what you guys are probably dealing with now had just started to sprout up. There was a lot of anti-police uh, sentiment going on because of the Michael Brown incident that had happened and a lot of hands up, don't shoot shit. And it really became political from the city's perspective, from our department policies. Every briefing was 10 more things we can't say, 10 more things we can't do. And 
literally the straw that broke the camel's back for me, what pissed me off is when they made the foot pursuits out of policy. I just like, you guys are crazy. I get car pursuits. It has to be certain scenario. You don't want to have a car blow a red light and kill a family in a minivan for a stolen. It's got to be, you know, a specific crime in progress for you to chase the wheels off. But a foot pursuit? Everybody runs from us. I mean, what, how, you tell me I can't chase a dude down the street anymore? It just started to bother me to the point where I knew I'm no longer an asset. I'm not happy what I'm doing. And I don't see any opportunities. I love patrol. Patrol's where it's at. But I needed to be somewhere else. I just because of my background and my experience overseas and my age, I'm now in my early forties. I'm like, I'm tired of fighting people on the street, man. I'm going to start to lose these fights here. Eventually I'm fighting you know, 18 to 25 year olds and they got to have a taser. You know, once I discovered that thing, I was like, okay, <laughs> I think I can survive. Zap, zap, so motherfucker. Hand hand with- <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, some of these young dudes are jacked and you're like, this guy's going to knock my teeth out. But you hit them, you take them for a little ride and, you know, turn them into a surfboard, get them in cuffs. But, uh, but I just knew, I knew it was my time and, and my options were so limited. Uh, I had some outside opportunities. I really wanted to get into training. I caught the training bug early on because a lot of people in the department knew my military background and they would have trouble uh, when the pistol call would come around so that my phone was blowing up. Clark, can you meet me at the academy and kind of dial me in? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't know if I could teach someone how to shoot. I never had done it. I just, you know, was taught from a variety of people and communities how to shoot. And I was, pretty good with handgun. And so when I would go down there, I would really adjust two or three things. And these guys were killing it. Guys and gals, they were killing it. The stress was gone. Cause you know, the Academy, they only have a certain amount of time to shoot. It's fairly cookie cutter. They got to get you through, get you called. And then whatever follow on training, depending on where you end up, it's kind of on you. So I really, I call it rehab shooting. I love to take people that, that thought they couldn't pass the qual. And within 30 minutes, they were so far above the minimum. They were just hoping to get the minimum score. I got them to where they were shooting experts. It's not hard, as you know, to shoot a gun. You just have to stop fucking with it so it can't act perfectly. The gun's a perfect instrument. We're the ones that fuck it up with bad little habits and nervous things that we're doing. As soon as you learn to chill out and let that gun do its thing, it's going to shoot itself, basically. So I took great pleasure in rehab shooting these people. And I really tried to get down to the academy firearms detail, but it's a retirement community. There were dudes down there when I was in that had been there for 14 years, hadn't took a report since the 90s. Yeah. And I'm like, you have to wait for someone to retire to get a slot. And then they already know who's going to get it. It's one of their buddies, you know. So when I knew my time was up with Phoenix, I thought, I really want to do firearms training. I really enjoy uh, that that industry. I'll just do it on my own. I'll do it privately. And that's what I when I left Phoenix moved to Texas and that's what I got into. I worked for a couple different companies. I had my own company for a while, travel around and I trained civilians, law enforcement and active duty military. And I loved it all, but I always had a special place in my heart for the law enforcement guys because I knew they were the ones most likely to use this training, most likely to be in a scenario where this training would help out as opposed to military or even civilians. I really had a soft spot in my heart for cops. And when I moved back to, to Arizona, I do want to start my own company back up just to once a month put on some free handgun training for LEOs in the area. Again, the people that might be having trouble passing calls and stuff, not the cool SWAT dudes. They know how to shoot. They train with the big boys. But the average patrol person who gets neglected, 
I really want to just fill that slot. And I really, I saw the most progress with patrol people. It was so easy to just adjust a few things and they were rock stars. And who knows, maybe it'll save their life someday or maybe it just made them a enthusiast for shooting and they shot on their own more often. Because as you know, not every cop shoots a lot. Right, right. Well, and you get a lot of people who go into these quals, you know, and, and I was lucky in that I, I had an affinity and a, a, a desire to to shoot guns from a fairly young, I mean, I was in high school. I wasn't, you know, like some of those folks that I'm sure you've talked to been shooting guns since before they could walk. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I try to tell people that you don't need to approach your yearly pistol qual with this dread. Like you're just going out and shooting a gun guys. Like, you know, you've yeah, shot a gun a whole bunch exactly. before, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Clark. I mean, there's you and I talked a little bit offline before we started with the ammunition shortage that's going on right now. Like we, you can't even get out to the range because you can't get ammunition to shoot at the range. And if you can, you're paying twice as much as what you did. And you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're cops, right? We're not, we're not Elon Musk. We're not, we're not running tech companies. <laughs> um, we're getting paid fairly well, but, uh, and especially, you know, cops made a whole lot of overtime with protest operations last year. Um, yeah. and I'm sure that they yeah. bought a whole bunch of new guns, but they probably didn't buy 10,000 rounds of ammunition to make sure that they had enough to see them through. And <laughs> you, you get yeah. a lot of people that, that, Oh, well you need to, you know, I, I will respect the rank, uh, you know, president Biden shooting him, shoot him in the knee, be like, Hey, dipshit. Well, there I go about the whole, you know, so, so much for respecting the rank part, I guess, but be like, Hey dude, you've clearly never tried to shoot somebody in the kneecap. I've never tried to exactly. shoot somebody in the kneecap. The kneecaps yeah. a very small target. And, you don't yeah. uh, no cop should uh and i know there probably are people who are you know i was i remember talking to a lieutenant of mine who had spent uh, decades uh on swat um um that you know he's got he, he had a good point that you know some of these these new guys come in and think that that it's sexy to get into a shooting and it's fucking not it's it's stressful yeah. it sucks i've never i have not oh, been yeah. in a shooting um i have uh, you know, always been an, an afterthought to shooting scenes. Uh, and I'm totally okay with that. Um, but if, if you've got to use it, you want to make sure that it goes right. And the only way to, the only way to make sure that you guarantee that shot, if you can even say guarantee is to get those reps in and get that training in. Uh, and, and, uh, it, uh, not to sound all all sappy, but it truly does warm my heart that you're talking about wanting to train, you know, you know, focus heavily on law enforcement um, because that's you know I've seen people struggle with the quals. There's people who you know just like who's, there's people who struggle with defensive oh, yeah. tactics. Um, um, yeah, certainly I'm no. I mean, I, shit, I lost the only high school fight that I was in by by a good long mile or so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> luckily, luckily, since then I've managed to keep myself. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I get handcuffs on them uh, before they do too much damage. So, and even then, it's few, it's go. few and far between. Man, that gift of gab using your verbal, verbal judo. Um, if yeah. nothing, if nothing oh, yeah. else, stall. I have had it before, where a guy looked around at us and and he was drunkard and shit, and he looks at looks at us and he was oh, like, shit. he was like, fuck you, he's doing the math. fuck he's yeah, doing he's doing the math, and he and he looks at uh, he looks at myself and a and a buddy of mine, and I'm not, I've said it on the show before, I'm not God's gift to physical fitness, like I did like Krav Maga for a couple years, and and he looks at me and two other guys, and he goes, the three of you are gonna fuck me up. 
And we were just like, uh, okay. That depends on you. Yeah. And, and shit. And that's dude, Clark, he turned around and put his own hands behind his back. So it was like, all right, well, fair enough. Take that opportunity when it presents itself. Yeah. No. Well, you know, one thing I used to tell people and it seemed to really work is I'd always tell them, be cool with me. I'm cool with you. Yeah. Token phrase, dude. If you can make, make that uh, connection. And, uh, and I also think my tats helped for some reason, just rolling through the hood. I had a lot of people not only compliment my tats, but they would say, I'm not going to talk to you, but I'll talk, I'll talk to that tatted motherfucker over there. So for me, I just, the way I looked, I guess, kind of vibed with them, but also the way I, I treated everybody with respect. I mean, I, I probably was an asshole a couple of times to people, but even bad guys, even when the fight was over, I dust them off. Sometimes I'd, you know, get them a water or even at the station, depending on if I was trying to get info from them, maybe get them a candy bar and a soda let them use the phone to call baby mama, whatever they had to do. I think uh, I always had a way of, of at least showing respect out there, but also not being a chump either, but communicating with them well seemed to help. Uh, I'm sure you've had squad mates of yours that seem to ask when the fight's over, then they come talking shit to your dude. And you're like, bro, I just got him in cuffs. I just got him calmed down. Are you going to call him a pussy or something? I used to, <laughs> I used to hate that. Yeah. I even tell you, you want me to, can I uncuss me? You fuck up my buddy, I won't say nothing. And they would laugh. Be like, can you do that? I'm like, fortunately I can't, but I really want to. Because I hate cops that would do that. Come after you just fought this dude or you foot chase or whatever it is, you and your partner are all scuffed up and that one guy that's on everybody's squad would come up talking shit. And you're like, listen, you little chihuahua. Get out of here, dude. <laughs> don't, don't, don't ask my dude up, man. Shit. Yeah, don't uh, don't undo all of my work. Okay, this, yeah, I'm fucking tired. My, this is the fourth yeah, uniform uh, shirt that I've been through in two months. <laughs> like, just yeah. fuck, just leave it alone. He's in cuffs. He's done. He's in the back of the car. Just yeah. be over and done with it. Over. Yeah, I and, and well, and you get like we we share. You know, you get down to to the fourth half jail, and it's cops from every agency in in the county. Oh yeah. Uh, down there, yeah. and you do hear some pretty interesting conversations, but I, I do, uh, I do appreciate that, uh, that with your tattoos, they, they just sort of, you know, I, I do not understand. I don't even have any fucking tattoos and I don't understand this. Like, well, we cannot allow our officers to show tattoos. Like, re- really? Do you know the people yeah. that were out there trying to like, that we're interacting with? I know. Shit. I really saw it as if they saw that. It's like they knew there was something different about you when you were tattooed. We had a few officers that were sleeved up, mostly prior military guys. And Phoenix flirted with tattoo policies while I was in. In fact, uh, they, they tried to make us wear long sleeves, but then the union stepped in with uh, whatever. It was always this tug of war going on that never really took place. Um, and then the Phoenix got weird with uh, – there were a couple off-duty incidents with military vets that were on the job. So then they wanted a list of every uh, Phoenix employee who had done time overseas in the military. And then we freaked out about that. We called it Schindler's List. So we had to push back on that. And they ended up not doing that. Um, so there was always weird, the tattoo policy, because I had a lot of success with it. A lot of people complimented me. And I just think they it made me more of a normal dude. They saw me a little bit outside the uniform, because when you're sleeved up like I am, especially people in the hood, they kind of look at that like, damn, that motherfucker's been somewhere. Like, he don't look like 
the other kids, you know, the little Mormon cops, <laughs> the little fresh haircut, you know, right. for some reason. And also my demeanor, like I said, I was always, um, to the best of my ability, situation dependent, polite and courteous. And even in tough situations, even if you're cussing at somebody, you can still kind of, you know, show this type of respect or just, I don't know. I, I really, I really liked working the streets of South Phoenix because there were times I felt like I had more in common with the people I was putting in cuffs than I worked with. Like it was just some of my squad mates. I'm like, you guys are idiots. They just didn't grasp it. I guess I had seen enough things overseas and other countries. Um, I had seen suffering. I had seen the things that human beings can do to each other. And a lot of the stuff you see in the street, um, at least some of it is pretty trivial. You know, there's no need to blow things out of proportion. You can de-escalate a lot of stuff just by being cool. And that's why I relied heavily on that. Hey, be cool with me. I'm cool with you. And a lot of dudes would say, fine, I'll talk to you, but I'm not talking to that dude. You know, it was just, I really had the ability to communicate with people. And I think it was because I've been to so many countries, worked with so many different types of people. It really helped me as opposed to maybe some of the younger guys that were kind of reading from a script. They didn't know what to do. Like, how do you settle a domestic violence call if you've never been married and divorced? Right. Uh, right. I felt bad for those kids. You know, the young cops that were like, oh, I don't know what to tell this guy. Can you help me out with it? I'm like, yeah, let's go talk to this dude. So I think that that really helped. Um, and I don't know why the department had this weird image of veterans, and tattoos. And I saw a lot of success with it. And my buddies that were similar to me, we would talk about that as well. Like, I don't know why they're, it's always under the guise of professionalism. And I would say, so that fat motherfucker that can't even run in a uniform, that's professional. I hate to be rude, but if you're a 300 pound cop, you're now a liability, not an asset. Are you going to be able to hop over that six foot wall and help me when I'm in the fight of my life? That's professional, but my tattoos make me unprofessional. I don't think so. Well, and there's you know, not, I, just, I see things a little different. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, you look at a city is for the the folks that live outside of Arizona, the the Phoenix metropolitan area, uh, which encompasses Phoenix and all of the surrounding cities, five hundred eighty six square miles. In an area yeah. as diverse as that, you've got your your like shanties. You know, you know, you look along the I ten corridor there in South Phoenix, right in that South Mountain area, and there are uh, mm -hmm. some truly like destitute folks out there that are just doing everything they can to scrape by and mom's working two jobs and dad's working two jobs. Kids are taking themselves to school, getting jumped on the way to school. And then mm -hmm. five miles north of that are these multi-million dollar homes or, or, you know, well, maybe, maybe five <laughs> miles north of the I-10 is, is actually more like, you know, these, these million dollar downtown Phoenix penthouses. But then, you know, you, you again get into, you know, north of that, uh, uh, you know, off of like Indian school road and whatnot, you, you can get into some other, you know, lower mm -hmm. income areas, but then you go a mile north yep. of Indian school and there's your $40 million homes perched on the side of Camelback mountain. You, yep. it takes all kinds to police a community effectively. Uh, I just, you know, I, I sit here and I, I'm not, I'm not an admin person. Um, I mean, I pay my union dues, but I, I, I really, I need to get more involved in my union. I've actually I've talked to a handful of union guys about, about that, but, uh, uh, mm, nice. balancing a hand, <laughs> balancing a lot, uh, as my current supervisor likes to tell me I'm busier than a one-legged man in an ass kicking <laughs> contest. Um, but, uh, but you will have your clean cut, 
Mormon officers, you know, patrolling, mm -hmm. patrolling areas. And if they're going to, you're, you're going to have your, your North Phoenix, you're more well to do, uh, you know, your upper middle class people, those, there's still going to be kids up there who want to be cops that can go right back to that area because they know that those are the people that pay your salary and like to be addressed as sir and ma'am and blah, 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 blah. Um, and then there's yep. dudes, yep. you know, men and women who grew up in completely other parts of their communities uh, who might have tats and have have that, that you know, they might be able to just just spit with the community a little bit better that you know that south mountain area different set of different set different of skills set of smarts. Yeah, yeah yeah different different yeah. set of street smarts right like you know how to navigate yeah. around the dude uh who's you know slamming heroin in an alleyway uh and and mm -hmm. there's a guy on your squad who might not know shit about alleyways because he never even lived against one um but he yeah, know he yeah. knows how to navigate a really pissed off soccer mom, and we can all agree yeah. that having somebody to oh, navigate yeah. the Karens of the world is extremely helpful because it's very fucking it frustrating. <laughs> oh yeah, oh dude, I spent a year in North Phoenix because of one of these little rebids we've been talking about. I got more complaints. I remember my first call because in the hood when shit's going down, man, you'll just plow that car right up on a front lawn and bail out and run into a house. I pulled my patrol car up on someone's front lawn up there because it was a DV, but North Phoenix DVs, domestic violence calls are <laughs> a little bit different ball game. Phoenix, <laughs> it was not, yeah, I did not need to just blaze up into the dude's front lawn like I did, but I, I got a lot of complaints and, and like what, I love what you're saying. The department seemed to realize they tend to want to just go after this poster child clean cut cop. And you're right. Those dudes are going to be very effective in certain areas. The more, Rough around the edges, dudes like myself, former military guys, maybe cops from rough cities like Chicago. You're going to need them to go into South Phoenix because they have a different set of skills. They have a different set of street smarts. They'll be able to talk to those people. You pull someone over a, a hell's angel on a bike who's pissed off, you're going to need a guy like me to talk to him as opposed to a little Mormon dude who's going to be terrified. Like, well, what the fuck? Or vice versa. I don't know what to say to a pissed off soccer mom. Uh, whatever I would say, I would be back at IA the next day. So you need to complement each other. I did notice early on in the teams, it was just carbon copies of myself, or I was a carbon copy of people ahead of me. Whereas in law enforcement, I, there was such a variety of people, a variety of talent in my briefing room every day. It was amazing. And they were all good at something. And so you knew if you were coming across this call, hey, call this dude. He, he knows how to do these real good. And then you kind of learn what they do and, it was amazing to me, but if these departments keep trying to recruit these cookie cutter individuals, whoever they may be, depending on the political winds or whatever phase they're going through their hire process, you got to really think that we all bring something to the table and you're limiting your department's capabilities. If you're going after one type of recruit, you know, I did very well in certain areas of the city. It's your job as an administrator to figure that out and keep me in that area and say, okay, you know, we don't want to put uh, Clark on the mayor's detail or <laughs> we want to keep right. him running. Or, or the mayor's going to defund us his damn self. So. <laughs> <laughs> Who hired this fucking kid? Man? What was he? No, but you keep me running through the alleyways of South Phoenix. I'd be happy as shit. And so uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I think departments, and if anyone ever listens to this, it's on the admin side of the hire process. You really are doing yourself a disservice by hiring one type of individual. You really benefit from the variety of applicants, the variety of officers you have on the street, 
it just makes it better, way better. And then keep them in the proper areas, you know, and that makes people happy when you get bounced around like I did, getting stuck in North Phoenix, disbanding my UC squad, you know, all that stuff kills morale and then you lose talent. Or like me saying, hey, can I go to firearms detail? No. Well, I'm one of the better shooters in the fucking department. Like, I can actually add some value to that staff down there. Not that I think I know everything, but I have had some life experiences that I think that detail could benefit from. Nope. They didn't want anything of it. So I finally realized, eh, I can go do this stuff on my own. But a good department would have said, hey, you know, and not just me case by case, but in general, if you kind of listen to the feedback of your officers, you'll do a lot better and it place them where they want to be. I think now that Phoenix has started to hire people again, maybe there's more opportunity. I did catch a weird lull with the hiring freeze, but the departments need to do a better job of taking care of their people, man. That's, that's one of the biggest things I saw. Um, that's unfortunate, but I like that you said that, man. You really spot on with different types of officers perform better and certain you just can't have the same type of individual out there running around which seems to be what the recruiting effort's all about i don't know yeah yeah man i mean well and uh, you know it's it's a, a matter of like me being honest with myself right i mean i grew up in in north phoenix i have zero fucking business trying to buy narcotics from a dude or do do you know do buys or reversals like they, they they i'd walk up to them they'd just be like no that's not how i i mean i could probably play off the like popped polo shirt which i never did get into but i could pay i could probably you know play up the fucking college frat kid who wants you know who yeah, wants some coke ASU, yeah. exactly frat boy at asu wants to get some coke for the night but that's about it uh but i went yeah. to part of what I did before I was a cop was uh, sales and I went to a whole shitload of training on how to talk people into buying shit. Uh, so uh, <laughs> that's where I, I'm pretty sure that I luckily have not been in as many fights as so many, uh, some other folks because I can talk my way out of shit really well, uh, which may make me a weasel. I don't actually know, but uh, no, that's good, man. Especially the older you get fighting sucks, man. I it started that my record started to flip the other way. Like I'm starting to get my ass kicked out here, man. This is horrible. I'm too old to be running around these streets. Well, I, I have, I have been on the patrol team that had to get talked to because we had the highest number of uses of force that year. So I've tried, tried to avoid that ever since and, and really learned from my oh, Lieutenant yeah. talking to all of us. Uh, should she be listening right now? Um, uh, we did try. So it's not always our fault. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, Sometimes it's where you work, too. I mean, like, you know, some of the squads I was on in South Phoenix, like, you get in fights every shift. Like, just the area. Now, if you're up in North Phoenix getting in fights, you might, I mean, it could still happen for sure. It can happen anywhere. But there are more parts of the city that are kind of prone to that sort of stuff. So I used to love how supervisors would come down like, God, how many use of forces did you guys have last week? It's like, you realize where we work. It's not like we're out looking for this shit. Like, you step up. I used to always remind them they did a drive-by on our precinct. I mean, what? Yeah, like you, anything outside of that. What, what are the rules, you know? Commander? Have you made sure that the wheels are still on your car? Like, come on now, <laughs> you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah for sure. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, man. This. Uh, uh, we got to, and, and from somebody who probably is the fucking cookie cutter, we've got to get away from the cookie cutter mold, man. I mean, like I said, it, it takes all kinds to, to get through, to get through this, this life that we're in. And, and especially with the job that we do it, uh, 
I think that yeah. that you're going to see the most success if you can a if you can emulate the community. But but when you emulate mm-hmm. the community, understand that uh, that again, as I've said, that certain people are going to be better in certain areas. So you know, like yeah. I you know I I have been on that scene where I have had uh, uh, a black dude tell me I'm not talking to you, but I'll talk to your partner over there. I'm like okay, yeah, like, like yeah. okay, I hey. I hear you. Yeah. Like I, I'm listening. But you um, had the ability to do that. You know what I mean? If it was a, a whole squad of your clones, you wouldn't have had that ability. But right. luckily, most squads are diverse enough with gender and race and backgrounds that somebody will be the best to be the lead on that call because of whatever background they had or knowledge or where they grew up. But if you take that away from these squads, and it's like, sorry, man, I'm all you got. <laughs> You're yeah. kind of stuck in that scenario. So luckily you had a buddy on your squad. You could say, Hey dude, you mind jumping on this? And nope. And they jump right in and whatever. So yeah, it, I'm glad you mentioned that. That is very overlooked. Yeah. Well, and um, it wasn't even a matter of me having to say anything. I mean, I mean, part of what made that mm-hmm. dude a, a good officer, um, uh, Marvis, he was, I think he was, Marvis yeah. was my first guest, uh, interview, uh, was, he was just, oh, nice. he, he was like, yeah, no, I like, Hey, and it didn't even like, there wasn't even a, like a transitional phase. He just stepped in. I stood mm-hmm. back, but it's not even a matter of, mm-hmm. of race or like where somebody grew up or how they grew up. I mean, dude, I've had, I've had a female who had just been the victim of a violent crime straight up, like shake her head and not want anything to do with me, a dude, given that it was a dude who had yeah. just attacked her. Okay. Sounds good. And, and yeah. a female teammate of mine jumped in there and did an excellent job with, with helping, helping that victim out. So, exactly. you know, it, it yep. I, I'd love to see, you know, the, and I, I do, uh, I do see diversity in, you know, where I work, uh, to a certain extent, but, but there are plenty of agencies where you, you may not, you may not observe that. Like you guys are, we're all on the varsity, uh, football team and now you're all yep. cops. Okay. Okay, like, well, I guess the yeah. entire the entire city knows you guys. Um, uh, but yeah, seeing yeah. seeing more female officers out there, more veterans. Uh, we just did uh, my yeah. agency just did a, a recruiting drive for veterans. Uh, uh, part of oh, good. Yeah, uh, you know, part part of that life experience. I think you there's there's something that that being in combat. Uh, I've talked about it before on the show. My agency, uh, I did get. Uh, uh, I don't know if I want to say I got to experience this, but I just happened to be working when we had a, an active shooter situation kick out. And at one point in time, the little group that I was with thought we were taking fire because it sounded so fucking close. Uh, and you could immediately see the three or four veterans that was in this like eight or nine person group. Those those three or four yeah. veterans, they're, they're, a switch got flipped. And I remember oh, yeah. looking at them and being like, I think we're going to be okay because we've got these dudes who have been yeah. through this shit before. Yep. So. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that. I, my One of my first patrol sergeants told me that offline. He said, you know, Clark, I just want you to know that you're one of the guys that shows up on scene and the other officers look to when it's those type of scenarios that you're describing. And you are that guy that now makes that scene okay. I want you to, I want to thank you for that. And I want you to understand that so you can appreciate that, that that's kind of your gift to this squad. You might suck at report writing, but <laughs> when there's any type of, <laughs> You, you might need a speaking spell to get through an average report, <laughs> but damn it all to hell if I don't want you next to me in a fist fight. So. <laughs> yeah, well, and that, it really meant a lot to me because being a knuckle jacker, I thought, well, I always jokingly said, but I was half serious. Maybe I'm not smart enough to be a cop. Like, 
God, there's so many computer systems you got to log into and passwords and this and call this, you know, holy shit. But I did realize that my gift being on the streets was just being that presence where the other guys, other gals knew like, oh, it's going to be okay. And, I, and we had some other military veterans and we kind of had a little click. We'd ride two man or whatever. And so we kind of knew that we were that uh, immediate QRF that could come out there. And when I became a patrol rifle operator, it kind of extended my abilities to help things. And so I really did see that for a while, even though I think Phoenix as a department was kind of down on veterans because of some off-duty incidents, not related to me, but just other vets. Um, it was nice to see some appreciation at the street level, like you just described, that the vets just hit that switch. And they have been exposed to so many scenarios similar that, you know, another compliment I got from my sergeant was that I was calm during these stressful events where some other newer officers kind of at my level didn't know what to do or were kind of pulling back and not being as engaged in this scenario as they should have been. And so um, they're, again, having that element of don't exclude veterans that they do bring. When there's that oh shit moment, it would be great to have a Marine that was in Fallujah by your side and going, hey, bro, what should we do? <laughs> Never been in a gunfight. What can we do? It's nice to have that partner or that squad mate. They can say, hey, do this, get on the radio, get this going, or whatever the scenario may be, he will be able to tactically take charge of that scenario quicker than another patrol officer who's never been in that scenario or a similar one. So, it, again, going back to what you're saying, the more variety of officers you have, there is always a moment where someone will shine in that moment. Even dumb knuckle draggers like myself in those oh shit scenarios, I know my squad mates were glad that I was there now. If we had to speak with detectives, probably somebody else stepped up and said, hey, this is what we got. I kind of pulled back and said, you talk to detectives, I'll be over here. Clark's but, not uh, in right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God. Man. Yeah. But, I, yeah, I, I did. I missed it. And, oh, yeah, yeah, there's always a little bit of me that thinks, oh, maybe I should just do some reserve time somewhere or something. But I really do plan on getting back to Phoenix and I really do want to start my training company up but once a month I want to have for patrol officers um, just you know three four hours of just BYOB bring your own bullets and uh, you know I don't want to teach anything that violates department policy it's just basic handgun getting you on paper getting you dialed in tactics movement all that stuff your department can teach you but I still uh, see a need for that to happen. So I, I hope that's how I can still be involved in law enforcement, still give back to the community um, and just do some random ride along. You know, I got into a shooting on temporary assignment. If I get into a shooting <laughs> as a ride along, <laughs> then we know, then we know you're just bad luck. So I'm a fucking detective and you're going to you walk into my office and then we're going to end up a fucking IED is going to go off. I'm like, God damn it, Clark. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that bad karma from Iraq I brought home with me. I, I definitely am a, a, a shit magnet for sure. So. That's okay. I now work. Uh, I was uh, I was once told by one of my FTOs uh, that he said, he was like, you know, Kevin, you're a shit magnet. And if you ever, I, I was leaving him and moving to another <laughs> FTO. He goes, if you ever show up on one of my scenes, I'm getting in the car and going in the opposite direction. And now his office <laughs> as a detective, his office is like 40 feet from mine. So I was going to pop, pop oh, my nice. head around the corner and be like, hey, man. Remember when you told? Nope, don't don't talk about it. Just go away. Just go away. Oh, okay, see you later. <laughs> nice. 
So, oh, shit, uh, well, man, when, when you, uh, when you do get out here, uh, hell yeah, I'd love to have you back on for a follow-up, have you sign the flag. Uh, that'd be awesome. Certainly come out there, uh, hoping to, uh, with this podcast, uh, launch a little YouTube channel on the, uh, associated with it and get out there and, and film some content right. and, and, uh, and put your company out there again. It's, it's awesome. People who are willing to, uh, uh, to provide training for our officers. God knows we need more of it. Uh, I think that everybody on both sides of the coin can agree that they want more highly trained people out there. Um, but if you want us to be, uh, American Ninja Warriors and, 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 you know, we have to wear 40,000 different hats, well, then we need the time to train. So, uh, definitely. Yeah. And, and if you're admin and you're listening, don't, uh, you know, provided it's a, uh, you know, a legit training or, uh, you know, organization and not like uncle Bob's, uh, how to, how to kill, <laughs> how to kill bad guys in 48 <laughs> steps. Uh, I, I say that you get on board with letting your guys go out there, especially if it's bring your own bullet. I like that BYOB, bring your own bullets. I'm gonna have to start using that one B-Y-O-B. when people want to, Hey man, yeah. can we go out and shoot? Yeah. You bring your own damn ammunition. Cause mm, this, this <laughs> yeah. shit's expensive. It has to be that way. Yeah. yeah I gotta no, start. I gotta start selling pictures of my feet on OnlyFans to be able to buy ammunition anymore, man. Like it's getting, it's getting to be hard, awkward times, uh, uh, here. So, uh, well, yeah, dude, whenever you get back out here, man, uh, as I you, you hit me up, man, there's a, there's a seat and a microphone across from me and there's, there's a selection of, uh, decent whiskeys and bourbons to choose from. Uh, and, and I'll even, I'll even grill you up a cheeseburger while you're here. So I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can compete with Mike Ritland. I'm pretty sure he like barbecued for pretty much every one of his guests, but, but I'll do my level best. (laughs) He really gives you the red carpet, man. We, we ate well and had some high end whiskey and sculled some beers and then had a little guitar jam session. And I was like, wow, this is VIP. This is great, man. I want to go back out for another episode just for that. And it's always good shooting the shit with Mike, but yeah, he, he did the red carpet, but I'm sure, Hey, just, uh, a cheeseburger and some good times back home with you would be great too, yeah. man. All good. Heck yeah, man. Well, before we <laughs> sign off, man, uh, you have your own podcast and it's the good I vibes do. podcast. Tell us, I know we've been, I've been, you know, I've been keeping you captive for two hours now, but tell, uh, tell everybody about the good vibes podcast and, and what they can expect when they go over and listen to it because, uh, they should. Yeah. Awesome. No, I appreciate it, brother. Kind of like you, I was inspired by Mike Ritland's podcast. Um, a couple of my other buddies were doing them and this and that, but, uh, Mike had invited me up and I saw kind of how he set things up and I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. Mike is uh, one of the few highly intelligent seals. He's really, uh, an anomaly that he's, he's super, super aggressive caveman, but he's super intelligent as well. So his production is pretty high end. And I thought, damn, this would be fun to do, but I don't know if I can do all this stuff, man. It's really detailed. Um, so I got into listening to other podcasts because I was curious about it. As a kid, I loved listening to Howard Stern and thought, shit, man, well, that's the best job on the planet just to throw fucking baloney at strippers' butts or something. Like, what a great job Howard Stern has. When podcasting kicked off, holy shit, you can kind of be your own little Howard Stern. So being on Mike Drop Podcast with Mike, I thought, man, I got to figure out a way to do this. Listening to some other podcasts, Joe Rogan, super interesting guest, awesome show. Bill Burr is the one that really inspired me to do it because his podcast is he just talks shit for 30 minutes a couple times a week. So I thought, hey, I could do one a week, just talk about random shit. I have a silly enough background in life to kind of babble about shit. I'm just going to do that. 
So a couple buddies that were doing it, I called them up. Hey, what kind of gear do I need? What software? Like, how does this work? And uh, it was actually pretty easy. My buddy gave me good advice about buy. The most of your money is going to be on the microphone. Because if it sounds like shit, no one's going to want to listen to it, no matter how interesting it is. So get yourself a good sure mic or whatever. So I got a decent setup. A second buddy uh, hooked me up with the software that I would need to kind of publish it, edit it, clean it up a little bit. And so that's how I started out. I did 20 episodes by myself. Um, and I thought, okay, what am I going to do? So I started it a year ago, last March. The pandemic had just kind of become a thing. And I thought, well, shit, what am I going to talk about? You know, my, is it going to be like every other SEAL cool guy podcast? There I was. I killed everybody. Like, no, that's been done a lot. Um, I want to make it funny, Bill Burr style, just kind of talk about goofy shit for 30 minutes. What can I call it? You know, you got to get a name. You've been through the steps. Like, oh, shit, what am yeah, I going to yeah. do? So anyway, I just... I said the world needs good vibes right now. Everyone's freaked out about this virus. I knew civil unrest was right around the corner because anytime there's like a pandemic, people start crazy. Um, so I said, I just want to take 30 minutes to make people laugh. You know, I talk about some tough stuff maybe here and there, but I always want to put a positive spin on it. But mostly I just want to have fun. And uh, so that's how it started out. And I kind of hit a ceiling pretty quickly because to sit alone in a room staring at a microphone it was kind of intimidating. I'm like, what, what am I going to talk about today? <laughs> I don't know what to, you know, you run out of ideas and I made it as fun as I could. And I thought co-host, I need a co-host because you can, I love chat with people. You can bounce off people. Maybe if I'm having an off day, co-host comes in and saves my ass. And I thought, well, shit, my IT guy that's been helping me, the software, like he's, we have great conversations. He's a funny dude. So I hit him up and said, Ryan, you want to co-host this shit with me? And he was hesitant at first. You know, he's afraid people might not like him. And I'm like, fuck him. This is our show. You know, we're going to make it fun. People like it or they don't. And, uh, and it's really taken off. I'm surprised the analytics we have for our software. It's amazing at, at how many countries have downloaded our episodes. And he's also, um, it's on YouTube as well. And he edits funny little things in and shit. And so we have the video format of it. And now through Zoom, we can interview people. That's another thing I wanted to do. Instead of just babbling to a microphone by myself, I thought, well, I have some interesting friends. Rob O'Neill, the guy that shopping in is a buddy of mine. It'd be great to have him on. Um, and I interviewed the Narcos guys, the guys that uh, were part of hunting down Pablo Escobar. So through Ryan, my co-host, and his ability to work Zoom and all this magic, it's been awesome, man. I I've talked to so many people that I thought I would never get a chance to talk to or have fun with. And so the, the show has just grown and grown and grown. So for your listeners, you're, you're welcome to be a part of the Vibe Tribe. Uh, you can search for it. It's on all platforms. It's on YouTube. And it's called uh, Good Vibes Podcast with Clark Impostato and Ryan G. And we just talk about all kinds of funny shit. It's just kind of a diarrhea for your brain for about an hour. And we, we get out of your hair. We just we reminisce about the 80s. We talk about some current events but we always try to put a positive spin on it if we interview somebody well known like rob we don't dwell on the obvious take dude shopping laden how many times has he told that story let's talk about some other stuff we really try to take a different angle and make it fun for the person we're talking to uh, as well and so we've had some success with that a lot of the feedback we've gotten from our guests was uh like hey this is really fun and, and we're gonna have you on 
soon. That'd be awesome if you're willing to hop yeah. on the podcast. Hell yeah, I man! Would invite you. You just let me know. That would be awesome. Yeah, for it'd sure. be it'd be it's weird. Awesome. Uh, be weird sitting in a in a different seat. You know, you know, being being the guy it who's is. people are people are talking to me, and uh, as opposed to the other way around. But yeah, anytime, man. Uh, uh, you hit me that up any weekend. And I'd I'd love I'd love the opportunity for it, brother. Uh, well, yeah, I, no, we'd love to have you on for sure. Let me know. So uh, so check him out. Uh, Good vibes podcast. How do people find you on social media, Clark? Yeah, so my new account I got banned. My other one got banned. It was uh, on Instagram. It was Frogman two one five five. My new one is Clark underscore Impostato, and Impostato was spelled I M P A S T A T O. And, uh, and yeah, my, my Instagram account's just as goofy as I am or my podcast is. So if you just want to have fun, goof around and I post kind of silly shit, you know, feel free to give me a follow and, uh, you know, ask me any questions. I always respond to every DM I get. So if you have questions about law enforcement or the military or anything I can ever do, you just want to shoot the shit about something I'm as available as I can be. So hit me up. I like it. Well, Clark, I've had a hell of a good time talking to you, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on my my humble podcast here, man. It means the world to me. Oh, I had a great time. Thank you so much, man. And, and be safe out there. And, and all the, the brothers and sisters in blue, listen, and be safe out there. Thank you for what you're doing. Absolutely. Uh, to those of you out there listening, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you've got anything, uh, questions, comments, concerns, bluelinemillennial at gmail.com. And then I just recently launched the, uh, the website as well. So uh, with that, thank you all very much for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you on the road.